Hello everyone and welcome back to the show. Today's presentation is a special Valentine's Day episode on American Psycho. This episode was recorded live on Twitter. If you want to get in on these episodes and contribute, if you want to listen live, if you want to speak at the end, if you want to ask questions to me or my guests, most of my episodes are recorded live on my Twitter. The link will be in the show notes. You can get in on it live. And also, this podcast is sponsored by Passage Press and Man's World. Passage Press will be publishing Man's World's magazine in full print and full color all throughout 2024. And you can also become a contributor and a writer. And you can see your work live in full color, in full print, delivered right to your door if you subscribe to Man's World. And if you submit your article ideas and your article propositions to Man's World Twitter account. All of this will be in my show notes. So join the show live, subscribe to Man's World, and you must submit, you must subscribe. Never seen you shine so bright. Mm-hmm. Never seen so many men ask you if you wanted to dance. Looking for a little romance. Give out half a chance. I have never seen that dress you're wearing. All the highlights in your hair that catch you. Have been blind, lady and man is dancing with me. There's nobody here. It's just you and me. It's where I wanna be. Now's a good time to start. And, you know, anybody who's not here right now is an avowed sex haver. And, uh, you know, they're an immediate block on site. So only real ones in here tonight on Valentine's Day. Um, let's see, Athenian's co-host, Aaron. We're going to make you the second co-host. Uh, you have to kick trannies out immediately if they show up. Lesbians are welcome, though. In fact, we encourage them to get the mic. E-girls, I don't know. I just tweeted this uh, absolute banger that really, really blew up. And uh, 
it accomplished a goal of mine, which one of my goals on Twitter was to tweet something that sent feminists into absolute hysterical fits of rage. Uh, and it worked and I knew it was going to work. I had this tweet planned for a while and I knew that when I tweeted it, it was going to set them off, but I added a little something extra to really make sure that leftists just, uh, had strokes, seizures, heart attacks, erectile dysfunction, anal prolapse, vaginal dryness, and, uh, any number of other problems that, uh, plague them herpes outbreaks, things like that. Uh, it worked. I'm not really going to like present. I'm actually working on a podcast episode about American psycho, but it probably won't come out till the end of the year. Uh, because I actually think it's a really important movie and it is deserving of analysis, uh, on multiple fronts. One of those fronts is, um, the transition point from like the 80s and 90s, the end of the postmodern era into the digital era because there's all the throwback stuff with all the music. Which when it was written, you know, Brett Easton Ellis was writing it in the late 80s, early 90s. So it was like pretty contemporary. But by the time the movie came out, it was retro. So it changes the vibe. Uh, and that's an important aspect. But the other thing about the movie is what I want to talk about tonight, which is the bullshit feminism this movie is an attempted feminist critique of toxic masculinity and white, you know, cis hetero white men and male culture. Uh, and it utterly fails at that. And it instead becomes a huge endorsement of these types of men. Um, Patrick Bateman uh, is amazing. He's literally me. He's one of the best characters ever. So anyway, I'm going to read this tweet, and then we're just going to start talking. I know Aaron has uh, been thinking about this movie and rewatched it for this space. So I am going to read the tweet, and then, you know, Aaron, if you're ready to make some comments, I can let you sort of start it off. Now, remember, I tweeted this tweet on purpose to be incendiary, and I did it on purpose to be controversial which doesn't necessarily mean I believe or disbelieve everything in this tweet. This tweet got 520 quote tweets and hundreds of comments. Some of the comments got thousands of likes. I didn't get ratioed, but I came close a couple times. Every single person who was criticizing this tweet was fat, ugly, gay, trans, uh, a lesbian, uh, uh, an incel female, so a femcel. Uh, Geo couldn't take the heat. Geo left. Geo, we needed a true cell in here. All right, Geo couldn't take the heat. Well, here's the tweet. Ready? There's a picture of, uh, I think his name's Hans Landa, the German guy from Inglorious Bastards. It's in the marquee. And Patrick Bateman in the tweet says, these two characters prove it's impossible to make a handsome, fit, articulate, successful, intelligent white man into a villain. No matter what they do, everyone wants to see more of them, sympathize with them, emulate them. Everyone knows these two are the heroes, and no one remembers anything about the film beyond their stellar performances and likability. And of course, all the women love them. So, uh, 
I'm going to let that tweet stand and speak for itself at the moment. Two key, but th- I guess three buzzwords for this movie are irony, satire, and feminism. Uh, I, uh, Patrick, the, the, my whole thing about this movie is that uh, Christian Bale is supposedly playing Patrick Bateman ironically in an attempt to satirize this culture of, of men and this type of man which is now known of as toxic masculinity. Uh, and it's from a feminist perspective. And it fails on every one of those levels. It doesn't satirize these people that it's trying to critique. The irony comes off as not necessarily sincere, but extremely likable. And um, it doesn't come across as this like strong feminist you know like critique of men it comes across as this like uh uh spotlight on like <laughs> like a total alpha male ripped chad successful um uh alpha male so athenian go ahead and, and you can jump in and interject at any point but uh so ironically like Okay, so the first thing is I haven't read the book, right? And I don't, I, I like always considered maybe I would read the book, but after looking into it, I'm not really, I don't think it's necessary. I'm not really interested in it. I only have so much time in life, and I don't think I have the time to dedicate to this book. But um, finding out the differences between the book and the movie, and what Brett Easton Ellis himself thinks about the book, absolutely helps inform your perspective on this movie and also finding out what what the director likes helps or not what she likes what she thinks helps your perspective on the movie now this is not typical of me to say this uh i typically think their intentions are only relevant if they match the textual content of the film or the book or the um the screenplay or the way it's directed. So this movie, uh, this woman, Mary Heron, is this feminist director whose first movie was I Shot Andy Warhol. Um, and then uh, she, the screenplay adapter was this woman, Guinevere Turner, who's in the movie later. She's the one where uh, he has someone in his apartment. I think it's Chloe Savini, but it might be the hooker that he kills with a chainsaw and she's like hanging out with him. And then she makes a joke like about how she's not a lesbian and she's not going to have a threesome. But the irony of course is that she is a lesbian in real life. And I've seen interviews with these two and I've read an interview with the director and she comes across like an idiot. I cannot believe that she said some of the things she said in her interviews with this, like she was surprised at how much people liked uh, Christian Bale's performance. She didn't want the ending to be as ambiguous as it ended up being. Uh, So I think, and I want people to tell me what their interpretation of the movie is, but at the end, I guess it's, I guess there's a couple things in the book that do not come across on the screen. So the first thing is that there's some proof in the book, apparently, that Patrick Bateman actually was a serial killer because uh, someone recognized him because there's wanted posters up. 
And the person who recognized him robs him for his watch and his wallet or something. And he's like, well, why are you robbing me if, like, you know, you know I'm a serial killer or whatever? And the guy says, there's no reward for you. So the guy's basically, like, blackmailing him. Like, I know you're not going to do anything because you're a wanted man, so just hand it over. So that's taken, like, for granted that that basically indicates that it really happened. That what happened in the book, excuse me, the murders really happened. Even though I guess it's somewhat ambiguous. And then the other thing is that Brett Easton Ellis made the other people who aren't Patrick, the other men, the other Wall Street guys, like interchangeable characters. And they made he made them like sort of indistinguishable from each other. And they don't use their names or they don't use their names that much. And what he was trying to convey with that is that these are all interchangeable, vacuous people. That's the whole point of the book is that these are like interchangeable, vacuous people. Whereas in the movie that doesn't necessarily come across because it's played by different actors. So you see their faces, but not only that, but they have distinct names and they focus very closely on Paul Allen. So they say his name appears like hundreds of times in the, in the movie. And at the end, the lawyer smoking a cigarette says, Paul Allen's not dead. I had lunch with him, um, you know, last week in Paris or whatever, or in, or in London. So in the book, apparently, it's conveyed to you that it's easy for a guy to mix these people up. Uh, that because these characters are all supposed to be like the same interchangeable, you know, type of guy on Wall Street who's got the same material taste uh, and the same materialistic mindset. I guess it's conveyed in the novel that like nobody really knows who you are personally. Like they don't know your identity. And he could potentially have thought he was having lunch with Paul Allen, but he was having lunch with another Wall Street guy who happened to be in London. And you don't really know. You walk away not knowing. But it does not come across as ambiguous in the movie at all. However, in an interview, uh, the director, Mary Heron, says that it was supposed to come across ambiguously. So that right there shows you that she's like incapable of pulling off what she's trying to pull off. Like, it's not very deft. If you compare this to Taxi Driver, at the end, Paul Schrader intended that ending to be real. And then he said uh, viewers saw it and were like telling him that it was a dream. Now, people familiar with Taxi Driver will be familiar with this interpretation that uh, everything in the movie was real basically up until the killing spree. And then that was, uh, or excuse me, the killing spree itself too was also real. But Travis Bickle either dies during the killing spree or goes back to being a taxi driver and he hallucinates the part about Jodie Foster uh, wanting to be with him and he hallucinates the part about the thank you letter from the parents and then he's really dead or he's really back to being a nobody and Paul Schrader was like yeah that works that reading works with the way I wrote the movie and I don't he didn't like contest it which is not the same thing as what Mary Heron did. Mary Heron was like, oh, it was supposed to, you know, mean a certain thing or be interpreted a certain way and people didn't take it that way. And she like said in an interview that like this was a failure and she like fucked up but she would have done things differently, which is like, that's a big giveaway right there of like what we're dealing with. But when I watched the movie, I right away like, I felt like I had the whole thing figured out in the sense that the, the director was trying to convey like this parody uh, because 
all feminine critiques of art are actually solipsistic ways for the feminist critic to deal with their own feelings of inferiority and inadequacy, either in the face of like the sexual marketplace or in the face of uh, uh, other women. Well, I guess it's just in the face of the sexual marketplace, period. I mean, I guess you could also say like physical violence, like that men are capable of physical violence. So they're like trying to uh, use their intellect or lack thereof to like um, get the better of men who, who, who are physically stronger than they are. Right. So this is all the culture, culture of resentment. This is all the politics of envy. So you can see like, for example, my opinion is that toxic masculinity doesn't exist. There's just masculinity and women try like feminists, I should say feminists try to use this concept as a weapon to, uh, kind of bring men to, to, to kind of force them to submit in the intellectual and artistic world, because this shit doesn't fly like in the real world. Um, I mean, it, like it flies, like it flies in, in like places where there's like a, an edifice of human resources and management to um, allow women to get away with this bullshit, but it doesn't fly like in interpersonal relationships, you know, unless a man is a simp and gets psyoped into believing it. But toxic masculinity is really just masculinity. And um, so first critique is this is supposed to be toxic masculinity on display. So if you consider this a satire, like the, the, the com highly competitive Wall Street world is supposed to be like a sublimation of like warrior violence. And this comes through very, very clear in... Uh, the Wolf of Wall Street. Jordan Belfort is basically like a warlord and he basically has a clan of warriors that he like uh, gathers underneath him because he's the alpha male and he's the top dog and he makes all these pe people rich and he gets all these people laid uh, exactly what a warlord does. But, you know, it's in this like highly economic, uh, technological, uh, uh, liberal society where you're not really using real violence. But the same instinct in men uh, is being utilized to like have this like pecking order and have this hierarchy and have this like highly competitive space, right? So to have him commit these acts of violence is supposed to be this like metaphorical critique and a satire of that male energy that is like rampant in that world, right? That's number one. Number two, women are supposed to be seen as like objects to these guys. Okay. So it, again, you like, if you compare this movie to the Wolf of Wall Street, if, if this stuff isn't immediately clear to you already, it becomes clear to you when you compare it to there. So like women in that movie, of course, are just basically prostitutes or if they're not prostitutes, they're, you know, his wife who he totally, his first wife, he leaves the second wife he cheats on and their, their relationship is ruined. Women are literally just sex objects. They have absolutely no purpose whatsoever beyond being like the object not even really of desire of these guys just like like slam pigs basically um cum dumpsters for these guys i mean that's literally it they're basically like fleshy sex toys right so the way it's depicted in american psycho uh is that like these women are literally his prey he's like literally preying on them 
like he's a like a hunter or whatever right so that's their way of critiquing like this male uh culture of sex now all of this is like so heavy-handed and ridiculous that i almost feel retarded explaining it but the reason that it's worth explaining is because a i got chimped out on like worse than ever in my entire life by this tweet about these guys and b because the director is a midwit who literally was trying to peddle in like the hallmark platitudes that I'm explaining here. Like all this midwit bullshit that is making you like roll your eyes right now. This is like the deepest she got with this movie, right? But the movie is a complete success. The movie is a smashing success. I fucking love the movie. It's totally against like the better judgment of the of the director. Uh, it's totally despite her best efforts to show this man as like a toxically masculine uh uh like psychopath okay so what she's trying to do is turn normal male behavior not even normal male behavior actually i would even go as far as to say that this is like a a high level um admirable male behavior because the only way civilization is established built and maintained is because of men like this acting like this. I mean, this is the whole like Camille Pallia critique of feminism. She's a lesbian who considers herself a feminist, but like her whole thing is to create, to, to critique feminism. And as a quick side note about this, something you have to always keep in mind about women, no matter how or what capacity you're dealing with them or who you're dealing with them, um, they hate themselves inside all of them they feel completely filthy i'll get into why they feel filthy later because it gets back into brett easton ellis being a homosexual uh and being a violent homosexual uh just bear with me for right now they all intrinsically feel worthless because of how filthy they are right so the only way that they can like make it through life is by finding ways to like build themselves up out of the gutter and the only way they can build themselves out of the gutter is a fucking lots of dudes which makes it only makes it worse for them it's like a, a negative feedback loop and b tearing other women down beneath them so when you have a lesbian uh short-haired butch uh feminist like camille Pallia come out and just eviscerate women left and right eviscerate feminism it, she's just simply doing the normal female thing of tearing other women down. That's all That's all she's doing. That being said, she has read lots of books, and she went to Yale, and she was tutored by Harold, Harold Bloom, and she's read Spangler and Nietzsche, and she understands them, believe it or not. Um, so she's right about a lot of what she says. And one of the things she says is that if women were in charge, we would still be living in grass huts. Uh, I would argue that if anyone but Northern European males were in charge, uh, we would still be living in grass huts. I guess that's not exactly true because the Greeks, but they're Aryans though. Um, so when women, so if men build society and then women come along and become ascendant and become powerful, they tear down society. That's what women are currently doing in power. They're in power and they're using it to, we live in a gynocracy. Make no mistake about it. And uh, they are currently tearing down 
civilization. So this was this woman's attempt to do that, to tear down civilization, to 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 expose, quote unquote, the toxic masculine traits of uh, alpha males who are at the top of the pecking order of Western civilization. And she's trying to turn their healthy behavior that carries literally all of Western civilization on its shoulders. She's trying to turn it into like this like pathological, sadistic, uh, psychotic, abnormal psychology that's bad for everyone. When all of human history flies in the face of that critique. But she can't do it. She doesn't succeed at it. And the reason she doesn't succeed is because an in-shape, good-looking, well-spoken, articulate man who is successful, like Patrick Bateman, is unambiguously likable by everyone who lays eyes on him except, of course, uh, lesbians and... I guess that's it. Just lesbians. And spiritual lesbians, fem cells, women who can't get laid, women who fail in the sexual marketplace, or women who have some sort of some sort of psychological, emotional childhood trauma that makes it so that they have to lash out at men and they want to control men. Uh, so that these are the women that go after beta males. There's two types of women that go after beta males. There's women who have some sort of um, bad relationship with either their father or their mother, or they had some unfortunate trauma in their childhood, which is unfortunate. And I'm not making light or making fun at all. I'm really not. But unfortunately these people grow up and it's not just women. It's everyone, any type of person. They grow up to perpetuate the trauma uh, and enact it on other people. And sometimes it's not obvious. It's subtle. Sometimes, sometimes it's obvious abuse. Other times it's like, subtle feelings of inadequacy that they can't get out from under. So they use it by, um, they have a beta husband that they can control. Um, and then you have these other women and this is like really unrelated to this conversation. So I'm just going to quickly mention it. You have these other women type of women who like are attractive and confident and successful and they keep beta guys around, but they also fuck alphas on the side as they're like, side pieces, but they're also just being used by the alphas anyway. Um, that's a whole different phenomenon. Doesn't necessarily, that, 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 that though is different because it's born out of narcissism and being spoiled. Whereas the ones who kind of keep the beta males around as their true and only concubines, uh, they're the ones who are doing it as, as a way to control. And everyone knows this is the same impetus uh, that leads women to who become mothers to control their children and to control their their boys and hem them in in all sorts of ways that aren't really related to American Psycho. So to get back to the movie, um, she's trying to pathologize or make pathological healthy behavior, and she fails at it because Patrick Bateman is so likable. So first of all, Christian Bale plays this character so well it may be his best performance uh he's funny he's he's quirky he's hilarious like everything he does works perfectly well he goes from being like uh he doesn't really care you know the devil may care um to super super jealous and resentful um more on that in a minute to being like super paranoid and descending into this like uh hallucinatory world where he thinks he's being found out and they're after him. And then he's starting to doubt 
his sanity in an extreme way because he started to doubt whether or not he ever even really killed these people. He doesn't really know what's going on. And uh, Patrick, uh, excuse me, Christian Bale pulls it off really, really well. So let's look at what 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 is this director doing, and what is what is Brett Easton Ellis trying to do? Well, she's trying to do a lot of things, and she fails at every single one of them. So Brett Easton Ellis, in an interview, says without question, no ambiguity, no room for debate, that the Patrick Bateman in the book is gay. That's the whole thing of the book, is that this is a gay man who's basically in the closet, and he's a true misogynist, and his violence against women is misogynistic violence against women. Now, before I said toxic masculinity doesn't exist, I'd like to say that misogyny exists, but not in the way women use it, uh, not in the way uh, spiritually homosexual men use it either. Uh, misogyny is hatred of women. So if you ask a typical or random man or woman on the street, um, are the men in Wolf of Wall Street misogynists? They're going to say yes, but they're going to be wrong about that. I'm taking a sip of water. Hold on. That is not misogynistic. To treat women like a sex, sex object is not misogynistic behavior. Even committing violence against women is not necessarily misogynistic. It's not inherently misogynistic. It can be. It can be. But to have a true disdain or hatred for women that drives you to the point of uh, having it psychologically torture you and drive you to loathe and hate women and have no use for them and to... Uh, it gets, it gets a little complicated, so so before I add to that, I'll just stop right here and say, only a homosexual can feel that way. If you don't know what I'm talking about, if you don't believe me, if you don't buy this, go read or don't go read and take my word for it, the poetry of Allen Ginsberg. Uh, this poetry is filled with loathing for women. It's filled with loathing for mothers. It's filled with loathing for procreation and children. Uh, and it's, it's driven by uh, a hatred for humanity that only someone who has overwhelming feelings of inadequacy can express. Uh, Jean-Paul Sartre expresses serious, uh, excuse me, similar loathing for humanity um, coming from a similar place inside of him, although I, I, I don't think he was gay. I, I don't even think he was spiritually homosexual, actually. I think Sartre is a bug man, whereas Allen Ginsberg is a homosexual. But it's the same loathing for what is pure and good and natural and healthy. These are the only people, in my opinion, who are capable of actually being misogynistic. And that is what Patrick Bateman in the book is being. Now, I told you I didn't read the book, but I've listened to interviews with Patrick Bateman and read analyses of the book. So please... Uh, you know, typically I try not to talk about books I haven't read. I think it's okay right now in the way I'm talking about it. But I want to give an open mic to anyone who has read the book and has comments on what I'm saying. So the uh, supposedly the violence in the book is multiple uh, orders of magnitude more graphic than the violence in the movie. 
It's disturbing to read. It's difficult to read. Uh, I, I know of some of the things that happen just from reading passages here and there, having people tell me. And it's irredeemably uh, sadistic towards women. To me, this is a closeted homosexual man who's, for whatever reason, unable to express his homosexual feelings sexually uh, with other men. So he takes them out on women as violence instead of, instead of sex. So to translate that from a gay man writing about a gay character who he says explicitly is gay, to try to translate that to a character who is not gay, who is written by a straight woman and a lesbian, because a straight woman and a lesbian, Guinevere Turner, who I mentioned earlier, who appeared in that scene, if you remember, where... Uh, he tried to get her to do a threesome, uh, is a lesbian in real life. So to have them try to translate a misogynistic character who's a homosexual, written by a homosexual, into a misogynistic character who is not a homosexual, who is not written by a homosexual, uh, is going to be fraught with peril. And the only way they thought they could pull it off was making it a feminist critique of toxic toxic masculinity. And I don't think it tracks. I don't think it tracks. And part of the reason it doesn't track is because these women don't feel hatred and violent rage in their souls against humanity and against mothers and against women in the same way someone like Brett Easton Ellis does. Now, There's precedence for this, what I'm saying. I'm not just pulling this out of my ass. Um, if you look into the life of the artist Francis Bacon, the Irish homosexual artist Francis Bacon, who made horrific, ugly art. Uh, it's actually good, redeemable art, but that requires its own podcast episode to explain what I mean by that. Uh, but, but it's good art. However, it is violent. It is very, very dark. Uh, some of these people, some women, not all women, uh, and not all gays, actually, but most gays, most bottoms in particular, um, because of the violent nature of being sexually penetrated, violence appeals to them in a different way. They don't want to commit the violence. They want to have the violence committed upon them. And anyone being honest knows that this is true, that women seek this out. They seek out dangerous men. They seek out dangerous situations. And then when something bad happens, they want to turn around and say, it wasn't my fault. Uh, when you know damn well, you put yourself, you know, if you, what was that allegory? If you help the snake and then the snake bites you, uh, men are violent. It's in their nature. People, some women and people like Brett Easton Ellis and Francis Bacon crave that and they seek that out and they go out and look for men who are going to violently abuse them. Francis Bacon had a series of lovers, some of whom he picked up in gay bars who would beat the shit out of him constantly, uh, cut him. One of them threw him through a plate glass window on the second floor and he stayed with these guys for years. Uh, so this violent urge that is like in the soul of these gay men is expressed through their art. And Francis, uh, Brett Easton Ellis himself, uh, is, you know, get, he, he's showing his hand, he's showing his cards with this brutal violence against women in which, you know, breasts are cut off and blood fills their mouth and all sorts of other horrible things happen. 
That's not how the violence is played in the movie. That's the whole point. This is not how the violence is played in the movie. Um, first of all, so he kills Paul Allen, right? The violence in the movie. Ah, yes. So my first point about the violence, because there's two things going on. He's killing these women, and he's killing Paul Allen. And they're not coming from the same place in the film. Um, he kills Paul Allen because he's supposedly jealous of him. And Paul Allen is supposedly the man he wants to be. These feelings that Patrick Bateman in the movie is supposedly having for Paul Allen... These are not the feelings that a high-performing, physically fit, uh, physically attractive, wealthy man has. This is a cope. This is a cope made up by the same people I've been, I've been uh, pillaring. Excuse me. Pillaring, pillorying. <laughs> That's a hard word to say. Throughout this space. The feelings that Patrick Bateman are having, supposedly, for Paul Allen are the feelings that this female director is having against other directors who are more successful than her. It's feelings that she's having against men who are more successful than her, who, who can do things she can't or that they can climb the ladder that she can't climb. The cope, the politics of envy are people saying, well, I'm not being... I'm not performing as well as them because uh, I'm a woman or because I'm black or whatever. Uh, so therefore I'm not getting advanced like they are because they're not getting it through hard work, determination, clarity of vision, uh, self-sacrifice and uh, aggressiveness. No, they're getting it because they're part of like the, you know, the old boys club or they're getting it because white men get preferential treatment or because they're, you know, physically handsome uh, they coast through life. These are the lies that these people tell themselves for being inadequate. So what's coming through with this jealousy of Paul Allen that leads him to kill him is, is not the way men like him act. If you ever hang out with guys like this, they're all supremely confident. They're, they're not, it, it's not really like as much of a dick-waving comp competition as people want it to think. Or want you to think it is. Um, because that's their way of trying to tear them down. Uh, these people really are just equals. They're just alpha males who made it to the top through their own competitiveness and aggressiveness. And, and they're just a group of equals. And they treat each other like equals. And every once in a while, someone does make it through who's, you know, weak or inadequate inside, or a small man inside, and he only got there. Maybe he's physically weak and unattractive, but he's got this powerful intellect but he lacks all of the other characteristics that these like jocks have uh or maybe he he really is a bum but his dad's rich and he made it that far and and a guy like that maybe maybe will come up with these feelings of inadequacy but if you think about your real life and the, and the, and the, and the football team players like the guys the really good looking guys in high school uh maybe you were one of them uh Nothing they do is motivated out of jealousy or envy. Nothing. They don't have petty, uh, you know, desires or squabbles with other people. Uh, they, I mean, maybe they do, but it's not. It's not out of uh, uh, 
this petty feeling of inadequacy. It's like trying to assert themselves as like the top dog at all times. So it's not born out of the things that people like Brett Easton Ellis and Mary Heron, the director, want you to think it's born out of. It's born out of a, a need to like be on top, which is an, I must repeat, it is an admirable trait in a man to want to be always be top dog and it has all sorts of benefits for people around them the 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 benefits uh do not all accrue only to these guys themselves they spread it around uh they spread it all the way around all of civilization when you get enough of these guys if you have enough of these guys at the core of your civilization you're going to have a thriving prosperous civilization um uh i'm there's a term I'm trying to think of externalities. That's right. They consider an externality to be like, okay, we're going to spend a million dollars on this thing. Uh, but some of that movies that some of that, uh, money is going to end up like going to something else. And it's going to create some other thing that is a, a direct result of us trying to get this project done. And that's an externality. So there are all sorts of externalities is normally a negative term. I may even be using it incorrectly for all I know. Who knows? But there's all sorts of externalities to these guys being alpha males. Uh, other people around them thrive and prosper. This goes back to the Jordan Belfort thing where I called him like a warlord. Uh, none of that comes through in this movie because these people don't see any of that. Like this is what's at the heart of communism. This is what's at the heart of feminism. They're driven by, by envy and jealousy. You know, feminists are driven by envy and jealousy of other women and of men. So they don't see like the positive externalities where all these other people are uplifted because of this behavior. They only see like, well, I got what I got uh, just just because of my own, uh, you know, my own greatness, uh, my own my own personal beauty, which is a cope. Uh, and they don't see that they get it from the hard work of others. So they want to tear those people down. Right. So that they can like feel like worthy of, of, of being alive. And then when they tear those people down, uh, everything goes to shit and everything collapses. So I'm almost done here. So Paul Allen, right. For Brett Easton Ellis, the gay, the murder of Paul Allen is a closeted repressed homosexual who wants to fuck this guy or get fucked by this guy, but he can't like let it flourish. So he kills him. But in the movie, uh, it's the director's feelings of inadequacy coming through Patrick Bateman. And you know, the people who attacked me for this tweet that I got, it was one of my most popular tweets ever. There were two videos about it made on TikTok that as of this morning had 20,000 views. I don't know what they said, though, because I don't have TikTok. I just know that it exists. Um, and I got attacked relentlessly by these midwits, by these dysgenic, blue-haired, short-haired lesbians or fat, uh, nail-polish-wearing gays. And their main line of attack... I got 520 quote tweets. Their main line of attack is that I... By saying that Patrick Bateman is, like, the hero who's, like... Uh, you know, handsome and charismatic, that I'm misreading the director's intention. But my whole point of the tweet is that the director's intention is stupid and she doesn't understand where she's fucking up because she's a spiritual lesbian. So 
the only people who I mean I mean most people are going to look at Patrick Bateman and just object and Christian Bale and just objectively say he's attractive, he's sexually attractive, he's a Chad, uh, and everything about him is great, and everybody should want to be about him, be like him. He's funny, everything. Um. Okay, so, uh, so right, so she fails. So the the people who watch the movie that fall for it uh, are themselves midwits. And okay, so now let's talk about the violence against women. And this will be the last thing I say. I really people start. I talked a lot. I didn't mean to talk this much. So I want people in the audience to start requesting the mic. I've had to. Uh, I want to point to, yeah, out. Uh, want to point out. Yeah, you, go ahead. Just want to point out you don't talk as much as I do. Uh, I've been known to give uh, two-hour spaces before where I don't give a mic to anyone, and I still have tons to say. Uh, so no worries uh, on uh, talking too much here. All right, I'll take it. I'll take it. Um, so I will. I have more to say, but I will finish on talking about the violence against women. Uh, the violence against women in this movie is not exactly what the director thinks it is. Although it's also not what Brett Easton Ellis thinks it is. I kind of, I kind of made that clear. It's played uh, for comedic. Not maybe not comedic value. That might be going too far, but slapstick. It's it's a bit slapsticky. Like the scene where I mean the the, the murder of Paul Allen is just hilarious. He's dancing around. Um he's dancing, I think it's the Huey Lewis. There's the whole there's the whole thing where he talks about pop music before he kills somebody. The scene where he's holding the nail gun up to Chloe Savini's head is ridiculous. Um it gets a little disturbing where he chases the girl with the chainsaw, but it's so over the top and unrealistic. It's not really played as like terrifying. It's it's kind of looks actually like a hallucination on his part because he's running through a, a apartment complex in the middle of the night with a chainsaw, which in and of itself is ridiculous enough. But then he kills her by like dropping it down the stairwell, which was a cool scene, and he's got this maniacal laughter. Um, it doesn't come across like realistic and that's the part for me in the movie where I started to like doubt that any of this was really happening. Um, but so, okay. So the violence against women, we have to consider a couple things. So of course, okay. I said in the beginning that the concept of misogyny is like hatred of women. And this is supposed to be, uh, a satirizing of the misogyny that typically doesn't play itself out as violence, like in the real world, they're trying to drive the point home, right? She's trying to like drive the point home that this guy is a misogynist, but the reason he's a misogynist is because he uses women for sex and he uses them as sex objects to fulfill his own solipsistic fantasy, right? But I already tried to make the point that that isn't misogynistic. That is not what misogyny is. And women like that anyway. And women do that to men. Um, th this totally, you know, the whole f the discussion about agency is, is, is another. All feminist discussions are bullshit. It's all cope. None of this stuff really exists. None of it's real. But if a grown woman has agency, like feminists insist that they do or should, then it's physically impossible to use someone in this way. 
Because if you have agency, you're able to like advocate for yourself. But if you don't have any agency, then that means you are a child and you should not be allowed into the adult milieu and onto the sexual marketplace and like having sexual encounters with grown adult men. Because if you don't have the agency to like understand that this person's using you or to understand what's going on, right? Because women construct these like super elaborate fantasies in their head about what's happening and what's transpiring between them and the and the guy. And I don't necessarily even mean like this romantic fantasy that they're falling in love and going to get married. Like that's not even what I mean necessarily. It, it, it's a way to reinforce your own self-worth by getting this male attention and women crave male attention. It's one of the only external ways for them to feel uh, inherent value. Of course, it's fleeting. So they have to like rack up a big body count. So to call this behavior misogynistic is a complete like it, it's a lesbian it's a it's a it's a it's a lesbian way of looking at this is to completely understand sexual dynamics. Uh, so that's the first thing. The second thing is this stupid concept of the male gaze, which is made up bullshit. Uh, the male gaze is like you know everybody's probably familiar with it. I think Susan Sontag is the one who propagated this, but I'm not sure. It was one of those uh, 1970s communist uh, uh, lesbian uh, feminists, though, who came up with this idea of the male gaze. And the idea of the male gaze is that, like, the female body and the female form, especially in media, but not just in media, in the world in general, but especially in media, that the um, female figure is there only for the pleasure uh, of uh, the male, you know, sexual lust or sexual desire, this object of desire. So they're put there to cater to the male gaze. And the male gaze wants to see women look a certain way. And this, of course, objectifies women. Uh, to, but, but my refutation to that is that this is how women want to be seen because they want their bodies to be admired. They want to. They want the reinforcement of the male behavior, or excuse me, the male attention, and they also want to um, enact behavior that they know men are going to like. So, while it's not totally this cut and dry, because there are many examples of like little girls and little children being coached to like act in a sexual way, and they learn from childhood to like perform in a certain way for the benefit of men. So there is something there, but it's not as like pathological as feminists want it to be. Because this is of course how you attract a mate. And this is of course how you navigate uh, society as a uh, physically inferior being to men. If you're not able to like have the aggressiveness and the, um, the capacity for violence that men have, you have to find other ways to make it. And women navigate the hierarchy because before I was talking about how men navigate the hierarchy through aggression and self-assertiveness and clarity of vision and all that. Women navigate the hierarchy in different ways. They navigate it through their intellect. They navigate it through, um, you know, being sweet to people. They navigate it through uh, using their sexuality as a way to like manipulate people or just as a way to like, get what they want. Um, so it is not pure. This, this sexualization of women and this objectification of women is not purely driven uh, 
by the male gaze. Uh, uh, <coughs> confident women will utilize this like inherent knowledge. It's not even an intellectual thing. It's just an instinct. The, they'll use this inherent knowledge to navigate these these worlds, right? But uh, women who don't have this, who are like who are like not inherently sexual, or who are physically unattractive, or um, they have the intellect but they don't have the charisma, they create these um, elaborate copes like the male gaze to like explain that the reason they're failing uh, in the sexual marketplace or the reason they're failing in the business world or they're failing in the art world isn't because they're terrible and have no redeeming qualities and have nothing to offer. No, it's because of all this elaborate, uh, intellectualized uh, dynamics, sexual and interpersonal dynamics that they literally invent <coughs> to, to explain away um, uh, why they fail. And again, I have to re reiterate that technically American Psycho is a failure because w because this woman doesn't understand that if you take a man who looks like that, who's in the position that he's in, no one is going to buy that he's a fucking dork and that he's a loser because he's objectively not a dork. He's objectively not a loser. He's objectively a Chad. Uh, and, and like dudes who are in that world who like have to navigate like other douchebags like Paul Allen and they have to navigate um, people who have nicer cars than them or nicer clothing or whatever. And they have to navigate people who can get reservations uh, at the restaurant that they can't like, they don't, they don't become psychotic, murderous, psychopathic serial killers. They like adapt they overcome, they get stronger, they get better at it, they wake up the next day and they try again, uh, and and they eventually succeed or they move on to something else because they're not fucking losers, and they're not communists, and they're not feminists. They're they're fucking alpha males. So they move on to something else if if it doesn't work out for them. And even if it even if they don't necessarily like rise to the absolute top of the pecking order, because I know a whole bunch of guys who went on to work on Wall Street who did not act like this. They end up living in Long Island or Connecticut or Westchester with their families and their wives. And they are, and this is, I was going to end it on the critique of the violence against women, but I forgot about the last, the third thing, which is the critique of materialism. This is the other thing the communists do. Uh, these people are happy with their homes and their second homes and their cars. And, um, you know, they're looked at as like exploiters, but I already tried to make the argument that they have these positive externalities, that these guys are actually like job creators and they're carrying people along with them. So the thing is, is uh, part of the reason why this movie's a failure is because a guy like Patrick Bateman is going to either stay in that world and he's going to succeed. He's not going to get the reservation today, but he's going to get it tomorrow. He's not going to fucking kill Paul Allen. He's just going to like continue to like go through the world of uh, high competitiveness and he's going to stay on top and he's going to make it or he's going to go uh, to Long Island or Westchester or Greenwich, Connecticut and he's going to live like a high upper middle class content life and he's going to be happy and he's going to have a good life and everything's going to work out great for them and this is why communists and lesbians hate these people because these people like made it in life. They built the civilization and this civilization operates for them. Now, a side note that I'm not going to get into, like a lot of stuff happened 
with the 2008 financial crash that like this type of person has gotten a bad rep in our society and it's definitely deserved to a certain extent in a certain way the hedge funds come out and the vulture capitalists come out and the people who crash the stock market but um there is so much more to that that is far beyond the scope of this conversation but suffice it to say that does not reinforce this picture of these types of guys um the people who brought the stock market down let's just think for a minute about who was in control of that shit alan greenspan right uh paul krugman joseph stiglitz and jeffrey Sachs. these are the three guys who uh uh, were responsible three of the guys who were responsible for globalization that hollowed out the American middle class. And then the, the wall street bankers, uh, start, um, picking over the corpse of America. And then the 2008 crash happens because they start giving, uh, toxic, uh, mortgages out to people who can't afford it. People who they knew couldn't afford it. And they hid it. They hid it from the market and people like Alan Greenspan, uh, allowed it to go on because everybody was making lots of money. Now, it's sort of a different thing, but it is in play here. These people went on to, uh, you know, get a really bad reputation for, for being people who were like vultures and not people who like generate uh, the economy and generate money and generate wealth. So you could easily take the things that happened on Wall Street after this and like apply it to this movie and say like, see, this all goes to prove that these guys are toxic and they are bad for America. But there's so many other factors in play that aren't in this movie that like it, it would require a whole nother space to even to even get into that. I don't even know if that's anybody's critique in this that's listening to me right now, but that is a critique that's out there. So um so so Brett Easton Ellis is critiquing like vapid materialist culture. And you have to remember that at this time in the 90s, uh, it was like cool and hip to be like over materialism and to like critique materialism. This is like the whole the whole grunge thing was like trying to like get away from like the overproduced, super polished sound of like cock rock, uh, you know, uh, sunset strip rock and roll and uh like the baggy clothes and like the hip-hop urban look of the 90s where people look kind of scruffy and grungy was a, a repudiation of like the yuppie culture of the 80s so it was like cool in the in the 90s to like critique materialist culture so like fight club does it david foster wallace constantly does it uh and uh brett easton ellis does it in this book they're trying to say like, oh, these are vapid people who, uh, you know, don't really have personalities. That's why I said before that his point in the book was that like these characters are supposed to be interchangeable. Like these people don't really have personalities. They just have products and like the products like define who they are in life. And like, yes, this society does deserve, it is a materialist society and does deserve criticism for that. But you also have to recognize that like this is what makes our society great is this drive to materialism. It's it's certainly gone into excess, especially like with pollution and everything. I, I understand all that. But this critique is bullshit. This critique says like these people aren't really happy and they're not really happy. 
right? That's what these people are saying. This is the politics of envy and the feelings of inadequacy re- 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 rearing their ugly head yet again. Because if you've ever run in upper middle class circles, and like, you know, I grew up pretty middle class, but also uh, near New York and the whole like New York, Boston, Philly metropolitan area and Connecticut. So, you know, I've been around these people a lot, especially like north of Boston, Greenwich, Connecticut. I have family in all these places. Um, Westchester, most of my family's in Westchester, or they at least they were. Uh, so I was around all these like upper middle class, Mercedes-Benz, BMW driving like McMansion people. And they weren't anything like any of this. All of these critiques are just totally made up. They're totally made up by by either spoiled brats like Brady Snellis is and Mary Heron is spoiled brats who like reject the the and David Foster Wallace himself also is a spoiled brat. Uh, who are all these people are overeducated, which which uh, I'm getting from David Foster Wallace. He he criticizes his generation of being overeducated. He says something like, "Oh, we're all walking around with like seventy thousand dollar." Uh, educations with nothing to do about it. So they sit there and they take all these like concepts that they learned in college and this like, you know, Brady Snellis went to Bennington College, which is like a, I've been to the campus. It's like a highly, I knew a fucking lesbian who was like an architect, architecture student who went there. Um, it's like this really exclusive liberal arts college, uh, private, very expensive. They're, they're all over New England uh, these people go to all these places or they go to RISD or Brown or, you know, all the places you've heard of, Yale, whatever. Um, but even more, these pe- these people are like on a whole different level. They're, they're not, at, they don't actually go to like Yale and Brown. They go to places you've probably never heard of, actually. Um, they're like this certain class of the elite that like fly under the radar in a way. And they're the people who come up and be like the movie directors and the artists and the, the writers and things like that. They go to places like Bard uh, and, and Bennington College. Um, these are the spoiled brats who are like, who like feel guilty about like having everything handed on them by the silver platter, but still being worthless because they can't go, they're not engineers. They can't go be engineers or they can't go be fucking, I don't know, whatever, uh, nuclear physicists. So instead they become artists and they tear down and critique all these people and, and attack them as being like vacuous, um, toxic people. When, if you actually go run in these circles, these people are all just normal people. I know lots of people who worked on wall street. They live like in like nice apartments and they have families and they have children and they have nannies and, uh, they live on long Island and they have big houses and they're just nice and normal. I may or may not even have people in my family like this who literally work literally on wall street, making oodles and oodles of money. And they are upstanding, normal, confident people. (laughs) And they've never heard a fly in their entire lives. And movies like this are an attempt to demonize that type of person. Right. But my whole point is that you can't demonize that type of person, especially when they look like Patrick Bateman does because all the women just want to fuck him anyway. It doesn't matter. He can do whatever he wants. People like Patrick Bateman can get away with whatever they want in life. 
They can do whatever they want and they have no consequences. And if you're jealous of them for that or you're mad at them for that, you're a loser. You failed. You probably would have died in infancy in a pre-modern time. But instead, medical technology kept you alive. And now all you do is leech off the system like a fucking uh, a cancerous tumor that is taking a whole bunch of resources but not giving anything back. And you look at the people who do give things back uh, and people who do like them, uh, who are charismatic, and you make movies like American Beauty that are trying to like make them look like evil monsters when uh, everyone knows that he, he's a Chad. So, okay, so, Brady, uh, the male gaze. I didn't say the thing about the male gaze. This is the last thing I'll say. In the movie... Uh, Okay, let me just give you an example of why this woman is a bad director. This whole movie is carried by Christian Bale. The whole movie is carried by Christian Bale. Paul Lito is a weird-looking little elvish hobbity freak. I don't know why he gets any... He sucks in every movie he's been in. He's terrible in this. He's awful to look at. Uh, women like him... Older matronly women like him because he's like delicate and unthreatening. But he definitely deserved to get his face chopped in by an axe by Christian Bale. 100%. Um, not to mention what happened to him in Fight Club. Okay, so Christian Bale is doing sit-ups uh, and the movie The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is playing in the background. That right there is just a dead giveaway that this woman is not a good film director and she doesn't know what she's doing. She's in a very heavy-handed way trying to set the tone of menace and horror and massacre and violence and some sort of sub-unconscious violent drives under the surface. But they're not under the surface. It's put out there explicitly. For you to try to like convey an idea to an audience by taking a different movie and showing that movie in your movie, like, that means you suck. That means you suck at being a director, okay? That's what that means. And then later, there's a, the scene with the chainsaw, and it's like he's living out this violent fantasy. He's living out this violent fantasy, supposedly. And he's just like, is he making this shit up in his head? And he's, like, seeing himself as Leatherface? Or is he actually killing these women in his way of, like, living out this movie he admires i don't really know however consider another scene where he's working out and he's watching pornography and there's a threesome he then goes on to have a threesome with two women and film the whole thing so he's again living out his fantasy right uh this is the whole and now she's trying to convey to you in her stupid heavy-handed way now remember i'm i'm lambasting this woman and her 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 skill as a director Remember, I love this movie. This movie is a great movie. Um, but she's trying to evoke the male gaze, right? By showing him fucking these women. But the whole time, he's looking at himself in the mirror and flexing, right? And he's like, he's having this like meta critique of this moment. While he's in the moment, he's like looking as a spectator from outside the moment looking on him. So that's like why he's reenacting the scene from the porno and he's filming what's going on with these women. Is that's what she's trying to say. She's trying to like make a comment on uh in her stupid womanly way. She's trying to like make a comment on like the male gaze and how women are used for 
men's sexual pleasure, but it really has nothing to do with the women. The women are interchangeable. The women, you don't see their faces during the sex scene because really it's just masturbating with another person's body because the woman is really just there uh, as a receptacle for your narcissistic uh, male gaze sexual, you know, uh, uh, sexual uh, fantasy, right? But of course, it falls flat like everything else falls flat in this movie for multiple reasons. The first reason is because Patrick Bateman looks great and he's ripped and he looks good when he has sex. And if you've never had sex uh, and looked in the mirror while you were doing it and looked at yourself, then you don't know what you're doing and you need to do that the next time you have sex because it's amazing and it's extremely sexual. And guess what? The women love it. Women love it when you do that because they think it's hot because it is hot because there's nothing wrong with it. Only a lesbian would have a problem with this. So what he's doing in that scene is awesome. Everyone knows it's awesome. It's great, and everyone loves it, right? Next thing, why does he have a, an escort and an, and an ugly prostitute? Now, no offense to the prostitute. She's actually not really ugly. She's plain. She's just plain. She's not bad or good. She's just blah. She's just there, right? Why does this handsome, ripped Chad have to go get a fucking street hooker off the street and have a threesome with her and, a, and an escort that he's paying God only knows how much money. The answer to that question is that he doesn't, okay? The Patrick Bateman character in real life does not have to find two hookers to have um, sex with, to have a threesome with. They can easily go down the street to the nearest club and find two women to do this with. Now, I understand this is supposed to take, take place in the 80s and the sexual... Uh, the sexual, like, social life of New York City has advanced greatly since then. But it's mostly just gotten lots more gay shit. Um, and the gay shit's gotten much more open. Everybody knows all the way back. But these things do come in waves. Um, but uh, they're, like, the Studio 54 in the 70s, like, Big Orgy or whatever. Disco was this Big Orgy. This stuff was happening in the 80s, too. There's this guy... He was like an Indian yogi named Bhagavan Das, I think was his name. And he had this book called It's Here Now. And the whole thing was about how he was having like massive, massive orgies in these New York City like penthouse sex cults that were run by these like feminist socialites. Uh, so this stuff was going on in the 80s. So Patrick Bateman did not have to go get this like busted ass street hooker to have a threesome with. And even if he did want to get one, he's rich. So he would have got a fucking supermodel. He would have bought, like, he would have hired two tens. He, and it would have been this super hot orgy between three extremely attractive people. So she had to make it with these, like, mid-ran-through street hookers because it's the only way that she could convey to you, the, the viewer, that this woman, like who the woman is, like doesn't matter to him. It's all about he himself, and this is solipsistic, like masturbation se session. That's what he's trying. That's what she's trying to say. And all this other meta McLuhan stuff too about you know uh, the camera is the male gaze. That's the whole male gaze thing. Which, if you know the male gaze thing, tell me who came up with it. I thought it was Susan Sontag, but it could be somebody else. The whole male gaze thing is that the camera is supposed to be a stand-in for the male gaze, right? So that's, like, what these scenes are. And then, whatever. I mean, I guess that's it. He goes on and has the whole relationship with Chloe Savini, which, like, I think he kills her in the book, but not in the movie. 
Chloe Savini's busted. She's not attractive. She 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 she's okay in kids. Kids isn't even whatever that great of a movie, but and she's not like that convincing in this movie. Everyone sucks in this movie, actually, except for Patrick Bateman. Um, oh well, no, actually, no. Justin Theroux and the other guys who are supposed to be like the vacuous Wall Street guys—they actually they actually play their parts really well. They play their parts really well. But if you are ever like privy to these conversations, right, with guys like that, uh, it's not my style. Anybody who knows me knows I'm like uh, a literature film nerd. So I don't like, that's not how I live my life, but I am around guys like that sometimes. And uh, when they sit around and talk, it's not funny. Like, like in the sense that like you can't like make fun of them. Like you can't laugh at them in the way that you're supposed to laugh at these guys because they're not uh, stupid and they're not um they're not petty and they're not uh they're confident they're not uh what's the word i'm looking for here their their behavior is not born out of feelings of inadequacy their behavior is born out of either striving for success or being successful so if you happen to sit around and be privy to conversations of guys who are like high performers in business who make a lot of money who work on wall street they're talking about that shit and they're dropping references here and there to either their yacht or to golfing wherever they're golfing or whatever level of you know financial success they have they talk about that shit and there's nothing funny about it there's nothing about it that you can make fun of the only reason brett easton ellis makes fun of them is because he wants to fuck them and they won't fuck him that's where this is all born from. It has nothing to do with the inherent ridiculousness of these people because these people are not inherently ridiculous, okay? These are inherently successful people. So that's it. That's my read on American Psycho. People need to talk. Uh, Spendo's in here. Eden is in here. I'm happy to have either one of you come up. Athenian and Aaron have the mic. Mass, Lee, you guys. I mean, if you, anybody else wants to talk, if we want this space to keep going... Uh, we can keep going, but you know, Patrick Bateman isn't like, I mean, okay. So first of all, think about this, right? Like he's supposed to be this like sociopathic loathsome villain, but women, sexy women love psychopathic, violent murderers. Everyone knows this Richard Ramirez, who looks like a fucking, a fucking skeleton, right who looks like he's starving to death and just crawled out of a mexican barrio after a three-week binge on meth right who murdered and raped old women okay richard ramirez was a rapist okay he wasn't just a murderer he was a murderer and a rapist and he didn't like stalk hot women he like <laughs> cornered grandmothers in their cars and rape them and murder them, okay? So this man had hot women show up in multitudes to his court proceedings and, like, flash him their pussies while he was on stage for this. This is what we're dealing with, okay? These are the people who are trying to critique somebody like Patrick Bateman and Christian Bale. Okay, Varg Vikernes, who uh, is a, a black metal musician from Sweden, some of you probably know, or in Norway. You probably know him on Twitter because he he he's had a few uh, run-ins with our sphere, 
literally stabbed a man who was wearing a pair of tidy whities Okay, he stabbed him in the fucking face with an army knife, a Swiss army knife, and killed him. He also had women flashing him in court. They had to close the court because all these women were showing up because he fucking stabbed someone in the face with a Swiss army knife and killed them. Okay? This is what we're dealing with. Ted Bundy also had women show up to his court case. Charles Manson. You think the women in Charles Manson's cult didn't know he was a depraved fucking psychopath? Do you believe in female agency and also believe that the women in Charles Manson's cult didn't know he was an absolute depraved psychopathic murderer? No. Those two things cannot be held simultaneously. You either have agency or you don't. And if you don't have agency, you're not allowed to fucking make movies. <laughs> and you're not allowed to like enter the sexual marketplaces in the business world and like get people fired. It's one or the other. Either you have it or you don't. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Go ahead, Spendo, or somebody, anybody. I can jump in in a bit. I just want to uh, say what's up. This is a great talk. Keep it going, though. All right. Well, I'm very disappointed at the number of people who are apparently having sex right now because this space should be way bigger. There's no excuse for not being here unless you're entertaining a young lady for Valentine's Day. Uh, someone else has to talk, because I just fucking talked for like an hour and a half. I think that's the longest rant I've ever gone in my life. I thought the incels were going to show up for this. What the fuck, man? <laughs> Aaron, please. Hey, uh, so uh, one of the main things that I uh, want to uh, mention uh, is the Zoomer kind of adoption of uh, Patrick Bateman. Like, the he's literally me, the Sigma memes like that. They seem ironic, but if you think about it, they're actually being genuine. Like, if you uh, define irony as, like, action or belief without being sincere, Zoomers, they're trying to become Bateman. Like, down from his dress to his facial expression. So, it's no longer just a bit, but, like, it becomes sincere. It's, like, post-irony and... I think it's kind of fascinating that Zoomers have no problem and willingly identify with someone who's supposed to be the villain. I love it, man. Oh, oh no. A bunch of young men are like using skincare products, speaking clearly and uh, enunciating properly and getting ripped and shredded. Oh no. Society is going to collapse. Like... Do you see, like, did I make my case that this woman, that this movie was a smashing success despite what this woman tried to do? Like, I remember, like, like I got all this when I saw the movie. Like, it's it's readily apparent. I don't think, I don't actually don't think I have a, a, one of the reasons why I put this movie on the back burner, actually, is because usually I try to present things that I have, like, a novel or interesting read on that I anticipate most people haven't heard before. Or if they've heard it before, they haven't heard it in like the, the wholeness that I'm able to present it. This is the first movie that I presented that I feel like everybody immediately gets the movie, at least everybody that we hang out with. Obviously, the 560 trannies who quote tweeted me saying that I don't understand the movie because I don't follow it to the letter of the director's intention, who herself specifically said the movie was a failure and she fucked up but because 
uh, people came away with it ambiguously, like not understanding if he was really a murderer or not. Um, so what I got from the movie, I feel like is what everybody gets from the movie, but it's the, when I read, I think it was on IMDb or somewhere that the scene where he's in the shower in the beginning, that like wherever the studio was that he was, that they were filming this, like all the women, it like spread like wildfire that like Patrick, I mean, excuse me, Christian Bale was naked taking a shower and that like every woman around came to watch him in the shower. And I was like, well, that's it right there. Like that, that tells me everything I need to know. You know what I mean? Like women are watching this movie and they're not intellectually being like, oh, I need a woman. I want a woman to come up here and say, and like, tell me uh, if I'm right or wrong. But I suspect that a heterosexual female who's confident in her, in her sexuality uh, will watch this movie and not have this intellectual interpretation like, oh, he's, he's, this is about the male gaze and he's toxically masculine and uh, uh, this is the fascist aesthetic. Like, you know, this movie is a critique of toxic masculinity. No. Like they're getting turned on by him. They probably like it when he's an asshole to his fucking to his uh, fiance. They they probably think that's hot. <laughs> they probably think she deserves it. They they probably wish they could have the threesome with him, like, and not this like busted whore, you know. Uh, so, Mass, I'm trying to give you. I already tried to give you the mic. I don't know if there's a if there's a straight heterosexual female in the audience who wants to say what they think about this movie. And if they responded more to Christian Bale in the shower than they did to the fucking heavy-handed uh, feminist uh, construction that they tried to put over it, you, I will let you speak un, uninterrupted. Uh, but Mass, go ahead if you had something to say, man. Yeah, no, I just want to say a uh, shout-out. This is like one of my favorite movies of all time. And uh, I spent a very, very fraction of a second on, this, on the Wall Street area, and I can echo your point uh to the type of caliber of individuals that are out there um you know they're they're dudes like all of us right um and it's i don't know um i i think i think that i i really love the the approach that you're taking by saying that they you know the author and the director are both trying to throw everybody under the bus and bateman just like or you know christian bale just totally takes this role and just uh just slams it um i don't know i thought it was pretty awesome Sounded like you might have had a young child in the background. If so, I, I know that circumstance well. Minor sleep. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like I said, I think uh, one of the important things I said was that this is a gay man who uh, is angry that all these men don't want to fuck him, so he takes it out on women because he's too much of a pussy homosexual to take the violence out on the other men because he knows they'll kill him so instead he writes this like misogynistic and and i'm not hesitating to use that word uh the, the american beauty the book from what i understand is what misogyny is it's him taking his feelings of inadequacy out on women because he knows he can't take it out on people like christian bale and then uh some feminist and some lesbian try to like translate that into some like feminist uh, critique and it clearly fails. Um, so that's that. I don't know. 
I'm I I'm, I'm glad I was able to juxtapose it with Wolf of Wall Street too because uh, I I don't think you can have a full understanding of what's wrong with the way the director tries to uh, present all this without looking at something like Wolf of Wall Street to like contrast it with. And Leonardo DiCaprio was originally supposed to be Patrick Bateman in this movie. And then I guess he had like such star power at the time that he was, uh, you know, just coming off Titanic not that long before that, that he like told the studio that he was interested in playing the lead role. And because Mary Heron was only, it was only her second movie, I think. And she was kind of unknown that they were going to try to give it to Oliver Stone. So can you imagine if this movie was made by Oliver fucking Stone? All of the negative things I've said about Mary Heron are are way more applicable to him than they are to her. He is the like liberal male version of her with the heavy-handed shit. If you look at the movie um, Natural Born Killers, he is so dense that he doesn't understand that the entire critique he's trying to make with that movie is inherent to the story and to the way the movie's played and to like what happens on the screen. But he doesn't get that because he's an idiot and he has to like put all this heavy handed shit in the movie with like the music and the sound effects and the fucking, uh, the cartoon shit and the flashes, it flashes from what's happening on the screen to like the devil, like the literal devil. Like it had, he'll have Mickey like, going into his psychotic berserker rage and then he'll flash to like this like room with like flashing red lights of like some man dressed up in this gay fucking satan costume laughing like the devil like the viewer needs that shit it's like it's like i mean tarantino was pissed off that he said that oliver stone like ruined his movie and you know natural born killers is such a strong movie it's such a strong script, and it's acted so well, just like American Beauty, that despite the director's best efforts to ruin it, it still turns out to be a great movie. So, uh, you know, I didn't think about this before I, I started talking, but I don't know if Mary Heron was taking cues from um, Oliver Stone with Natural Born Killers, but it would kind of make sense in a way, like, the way in the beginning, like, the whole meta thing, like, being meta, this, like, is what postmodernism is. This is what, like, normies think postmodernism is, is being meta. Um, and I remember, like, I'm old enough to remember, like, when people started to notice this happening, that, like, if you wanted to sound smart, you would call something meta, and you would, like, talk about how meta it is that Patrick Bateman, like, watched a porno and then filmed himself having a threesome like in the porno but we're watching a movie and the move and we're the subject watching the characters and it's this like super meta thing where i'm like watching a movie in a movie of a guy making a movie and it's like meta all the way down and in natural born killers in the beginning like uh quentin tarantino said that well i read the script to natural born killers and oliver stone added a bunch of nonsense so like the stuff with rodney dangerfield is actually it's kind of good in a way there's like i mean rodney dangerfield is fucking beyond reproach he's one of the best actors comedic actors of all time and to see him in this role was fucking awesome so he was good in that movie and everything uh but tarantino said that he didn't like the way oliver stone felt the need to create this like traumatic childhood 
for uh, uh, Juliette Lewis that uh, what's his name came because they're trying. He he was attempting to like give like a rationale for the violence to say like oh they they oh oh and the other thing is um, Mickey's dad kills himself in front of him in the movie. Uh, Tarantino didn't put that in there either. So and he didn't like the way that. Um, Tarantino's not that smart and he's like way smarter than Oliver Stone. Uh, he, he didn't like the way that Oliver Stone felt like he had to like come up with this like psychological justification for like emotional scarring and damage that Mickey and Mallory had. That's what drove them to go be killers. Um, I think that's sort of bullshit. I think that's true for some people, but it's not true for other people. Uh, that's what the movie In Cold Blood is supposed to be about, right? That these guys just were just killers and they just killed people because that's just what they were. And I think that's what Tarantino was trying to go. That's why they're called natural born killers. For 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 Mickey to say that we're natural born killers after watching a whole movie showing that they're actually not natural born killers, that they're actually traumatized children who grew up to become dysfunctional adults is like a fucking non sequitur. It's like paradoxical for him to say we're natural born killers. Uh, it flies in the face of everything you just watched. So now you have to like take yourself outside of the narrative and take yourself outside of the film and be like, oh, that's weird. He's just a natural born killer. So now we have to psychologize Mickey and say like, well, he's not actually a natural born killer, but he thinks he's a natural born killer. So he hasn't done the work like the liberals like to say. He hasn't done the psychological work of like investigating his traumatic childhood and the loss of his father. And it brings in this whole dimension of psychological bullshit that Quentin Tarantino knew was bullshit that he didn't want to put in the movie because it fucked the whole thing up. And these people don't get that. And I don't know how much of this is the studio. I know the studio dumbs this stuff down. I know the studio adds this shit and takes shit away. And they don't want things to come across so brutal. The, the story is that Patrick Bateman in the book is not redeemable and has no likable qualities and that Bredy Stanellis says he went out of his way to demonize this person and make it painfully obvious that he has no redeeming qualities. Hollywood doesn't like that shit. They want likable characters for an audience to like attach themselves to and sympathize with and empathize with or whatever. But my whole point of the tweet above is that if you take a handsome, well-spoken, articulate, in-shape man and like show him the shirt off, people are going to like him no matter what you have him do. No matter what you have him do, they're going to like him. Hans Landa fucking machine guns a defenseless family who is hiding under the floorboards, and he's the only good character in the entire movie. And everyone knows it. I mean, the whole thing about that movie, like people tried to talk about other shit, but very soon, the only thing people ended up talking about in Inglorious Bastards was that guy's performance. Because it's like one of the best performances of all time. And I'm not saying it makes him a good person, but it does make him a compelling person to watch. And no matter what you have him do, including massacre a family, uh, that's the one everybody wants to watch and see more of. Um, because he's confident and handsome and well-spoken and white, quite frankly. Not that black people can't do this. They can, but it's different, though. They do it in a different way. Um, uh, Denzel Washington is much better in Man on Fire than he is as... Or or even um, Training Day, which isn't the best movie. 
he's much more compelling in those movies than he is as Malik Abdul Shabazz or whatever his name is, is Malcolm X. Uh, but um, so the meta thing in Natural Born Killers I was talking about is that the Rodney Dangerfield scene is supposed to be a TV show. And again, it's this whole like David Lynch thing of like the the 1950s sitcom that where everything's rosy and peachy keen and we're supposed to have this like nostalgic view of like 1950s American nuclear family where everything's perfect in the sitcoms, right? But now we have this meta critique of American uh, film and American media culture. And the reason why it's meta is because um, the we're watching a movie with a TV show in the movie that's part of the movie. So it's like we're like twice removed. So so the movie is self-aware of itself as a movie. And it's like getting outside of itself in terms of the media to like contain a different media inside of it, right? So the porno that Patrick Bateman is filming is contained in the meta structure of the movie American Psycho and the sitcom that we're watching is contained in the meta structure of natural born killers. So that's why it's called meta. Um, any self-awareness or like self-reflection is like meta. So this is what postmodernism is supposed to be because it's not like naive and sincere and immediate. Whereas when um, like the earlier golden era of movies of like the twenties, thirties, forties and fifties, were like coming into their own it was like a new medium and like it was a new form of entertainment television too that like americans and europeans were like developing together developing as filmmakers who were producing films and developing simultaneously rhizomatically if you will with the audience so it was like organically growing but uh, once time goes by and you start to like accumulate like a database of film, you start to like look backwards onto it. And that's like when you start to get like meta and you start to have like uh, self critiques of the medium. So then you start to make movies that are critiques of the medium, but it's a critique of the medium that the film is itself being produced in. Right. And people think they're clever for like figuring this out. Now, it's good to talk about in the sense that like you need to understand and know like the, the structure of the media that you're consuming. So it's good to talk about it in that way. But in order to like do it self-consciously and to like say like, ho, 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 look at me. I'm making a meta movie. Aren't I so clever? Like. This is the problem with postmodernism. Like, postmodernism becomes this, like, kitsch, like, trickery where, like, instead of, like, telling a good story, you're just using this trickery to, like, to just, like, skate by. And you're just, like, dumping out, like, masses of, like, dross of, like, lowbrow or, like, uh, transparent, flimsy art that, like, doesn't have, like, a lot of depth of meaning. And you just mass produce it. This is what Andy Warhol literally is. That's like literally, I just described Andy Warhol's entire career. Um, but it's meta because he's like self-aware of this, right? Um, 
So the whole problem is the whole reason this relates to American psycho and uh, uh, natural born killers is that these directors are so caught up with like the tricks and the gimmicks of their era that they're like, don't even realize the material that they have on their hands and how good it is. They're incapable of seeing like worthy art that performs its function very, very well because of the way it's written and the way it's acted and to an extent the way it's directed. I mean, I don't want to take everything away from Oliver Stone and Mary Heron. I mean, they certainly must have played some role, not only in the performances that the actors put out, but the dynamic between the different actors. Uh, part of that is like the director's job. So I'm not trying to take everything away from them, but the fact that they have this like very solid foundation that gets the job done on its own and they feel like they have to like put the gimmicks onto it is a sign of like a decadent art form. That's what a decadent art form is. It's people putting these pointless artistic flourishes on their promotion, uh, excuse me, their product um, to show off. Like, look at how clever I am. Aren't I such a great director because I had this fucking meta scene or that. And part of it is like the intellect superseding like the artistic instinct as well. Because like Mary Heron didn't have to put that scene of him watching porno or that scene of him watching the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. She could have just had him uh, attack the girl with the chainsaw and she could have just had him make his own porno. And like the audience would have got it. The audience would have got it. You know what I'm saying? That's a sign of like decadent art where somebody makes something like more elaborate than it needs to be. And this is all coming. You know, this is why I was trying to say before, but I didn't really want to get into it. And I still don't that like part of American psychos like uh, importance is that it's coming at the transition point between the analog and the digital age. And that like postmodernism had basically like run its course. And you can see postmodernism modernism like petering out basically with um like Mahal like all these movies like at this time, like Mulholland Drive, American Psycho, Fight Club. Um not every movie that came out at that time, mind you. Uh but but those movies, it's like it's like the final end of the postmodern age of film and art. And like, I think probably kill bill one and two and me and Spendo are going to talk about this. That's kind of where you have this new hybrid creation of like, uh, the form, because this is what happens. This is what happens when a medium or media like dies and withers on the vine is that the the artistic expression starts to try to like break out of the medium. It starts to uh, grow outside the confines of the medium and it needs to transpose itself onto a new medium. And when you see a transition from one media to another media, like in, in terms of like an epoch, you see this like, uh, you see this like, what's the word I'm looking for here? You see this like misuse of the medium because they're try the 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 media itself can no longer express what it was trying to express because it's already expressed it right so let me give you an example of what i mean uh 
Natural Born Killers. This the movie is about the Starkweather murders, where this guy supposedly kidnapped this woman and went on a murder spree. Um, this story had been told over and over and over again, um, and it's not. It's and it, although it was based on Starkweather, there's also some Bonnie and Clyde mixed up in that. So the Warren Beatty movie Bonnie and Clyde came out, and it's like, uh, and then there's this other movie. Fuck, I'm forgetting the name off the top of my head. But it came out in the 70s. It's directed by the guy who directed uh, The Thin Red Line. Uh, What is the name of this movie? It's about Charles Starkweather. Anyway, Tarantino is, like, taking these stories and, like, reworking them and, like, retelling them for, like, a new era. So he's, like, pilfering, like, the history of cinema to try to like basically like stitch together like a Frankenstein's monster of like all these different other movies together uh, to tell basically the same story from a fresh perspective. So he, I mean, people, and this is like, it, it, this is like overt, by the way. I'm not like making any of this up. Actually, none of the shit I say is ever made up. It's always comes from something I've read uh, or putting things together or making a conclusion from something I've read. Um, like, he loves Warren Beatty. He tried to put Warren Beatty in one of his movies. I think he tried to make Warren Beatty the guy that David Carradine played in Kill Bill. So, like, Warren Beatty's one of his favorite guys. Um, I gotta look up this director whose name's on the tip of my tongue and the movie's on the tip of my tongue about Charles Starkweather. But anyway, the point I'm trying to make here is that, like, these stories had already been told by this medium. Like, the medium had already, like, come to its full potential by the time these guys came around so the only way they can like get anything out of the medium is to make like these tricks to do these tricks to like make it fresh to make it look like you're watching something new and make it look like you're watching something you've never seen before but what you're actually seeing is the medium like jumping as the like one for like the dominant form of expression for that culture uh, 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 which is narrative. You're watching narrative, the, the deployment of narrative via that particular medium. You're watching it jump from one medium to the next. So an example of what I mean is Pulp Fiction. I know I was talking about, I know I was talking about Natural Born Killers, but let me just bear with me here. The reason why Pulp Fiction is chopped up in the way it is and it's got like a non-linear story is because it's three or four different movies smashed together. Quentin Tarantino is very concerned with making like series of movies. Kill Bill was supposed to be at least three movies, uh, but he said that like it could potentially go on for infinity. Um, a, a film, the medium of a movie in the analog age is film. So a film can only be like two, two hour, two hours, two hours and twenty minutes long. So you have to tell the story in that time. You have to like have a beginning, middle, and end. You have to have conflict. You have to have conflict resolution. You have to develop the character. You have to have the character have some form of growth in two and a half hours. You, and the trick of a director and a screenwriter is to figure out how to make that work in the time allotted to you. By the time you get to the 90s, the narrative is ballooning off the two and a half hour thing. Okay, The narrative is trying to jump to a new medium. Dances with Wolves, uh, uh, Heat, um, uh, The Last of the Mohicans, Braveheart, 
All of these are two VHS films because they're three, three and a half hours long. The story is cannot any longer be contained by the medium because what the people are trying to do is tell this like bigger, more elaborate tapestry of a story. They're no longer telling you this like concise little narrative. So Quentin Tarantino wants to actually have like three or four movies. And he says like in a novel, you can do this. You can put all this in there. And in like a 400-page novel, and they say this about American Psycho too. They talk about this, about the difficulty of turning a 400-page novel into a two-hour movie. So you have to find a way to like condense the narrative down so it makes like chronological coherent sense, right? And um, it was starting to not work anymore. They were starting to like balloon off medium right you're starting to get these like super super long movies and like it's proliferating these really long movies right so you have movies like pulp fiction and uh mulholland drive which do not have linear narratives because both of them were originally conceived of as series mulholland drive was supposed to be a television series and pulp fiction uh he wanted it to be like a bunch of pulp novels or a bunch of different movies that he had to find a clever... That's the whole... This is important. Postmodernism is supposed to use gimmicks. It's supposed to use trickery. And it's supposed to use cleverness. Uh, the cleverness on the part of the director or the author to find a new way to tell the story um, using the old medium because the medium has become exhausted. And everyone knows the medium has become exhausted. And I'm not making this up. John Barth who David Foster Wallace is in communication, not, not in communication with, but like in conversation with, because some of David Foster Wallace's work, remember I said, remember I said, like Chuck Palahniuk, Brett Easton Ellis, um, and um, who's the other one? Uh, David Foster Wallace were like the three main, like postmodern guys from the 90s, right? David, they, all, what all these guys were trying to do was like figure out a way to like keep their fucking medium viable in the face of like artistic exhaustion of these mediums. So Tarantino had to take like six hours worth of content and find a way to like smash it in to a two hour movie. And he ends up making like the most quintessentially postmodern movie of all time with a possible exception of Mulholland drive, perhaps being even more quintessentially postmodern. And I'll tell you why in a second, because uh, postmodernism is uh, defined in part by a, being a pastiche of all different previous like media. So instead of being like uh, the trademark artistic expression of that particular director, it's a mishmash and like a, 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 a collage or a pastiche of all different trademarks kind of jumbled together. In fact, if Quentin Tarantino has a trademark, it's that he like has this jumbling of the narrative where where uh, in Reservoir Dogs, you don't actually see the the um, bank robbery ever in the movie like it never happens. Uh, that's a trick. That's a way for him to tell his story and have it contained within the medium. Pulp Fiction is like nonlinear time, three or four different stories. They're only loosely connected. It's, um, it should be six hours long, but it's, it's, he had to turn it into a collage or a pastiche to break it down to fit it into the narrative. Now, um, 
it's a little bit different with American Psycho because it, it is a coherent narrative that kind of ends up telling the whole story within the confines of the two hours on the film. So I'm not really going to talk about American Psycho in relation to what I'm saying. It is in there, though, because of all the retro stuff. I mentioned that already. Uh, but it's a little bit different. But uh, I'm just going to finally make a comment about Mulholland Drive. This is what I'm coming to about the narrative as the dominant mode of cultural expression jumping from one medium to another because it outgrows the original medium. Okay, so the narrative, the, the dominant form of expression in like late uh, modernity was painting, and then it jumped from painting to photography and film and television. It outgrew the limitations of the medium of painting and went to film. It then outgrew film at the end of the 90s and jumped to digitization. And digitization does not have the same constraints on narrative that film does. You can put a hundred hours of of content on a tiny little thumb drive. If you want a hundred hours of film, you need like 20 VHS tapes or 20 DVDs or whatever it is. A thumb drive can have the, the contents of 50 DVDs on it, right? So now you can, the, the narrative can balloon out and you can tell these really, really long stories. That's why you come out with like uh, the, 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 the talent in storytelling on film transposed from film to television. So then all of a sudden you had like the rise and the age, very short lived of television where you had high quality TV being made like the show Rome, the Sopranos. This was, you know, uh, HBO was like on top of all this Rome, the Sopranos, Deadwood, Boardwalk Empire, and on and on and on all the rest of it. Right. The reason why Mulholland drive is a nonlinear pastiche of uh, several different things going on that seem disconnected is because it was supposed to be a television series. Okay. David Lynch was ahead of the curve on all of this with uh, Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks was movie quality television that told one story. It was one narrative deployed and stretched out over dozens of episodes. Okay. So, it was not your average uh, picaresque of like episode after episode after episode that like are really unrelated to each other. It's just the same characters being interchanged with different situations. There's no growth of character. There's no arc. There's no introspection or anything. It's just like a jumble. And you can pretty much watch normal television before Twin Peaks like in any order it's like not telling this like story it's all contained within the half an hour long narrative okay it's all constrained by that medium but David Lynch was a visionary and he saw that you could use television as a way to like tell this really long elaborate story and Mulholland Drive was originally conceived of as like a spin-off of Twin Peaks it, he started the idea of this character back then. And then he like revived it and said, I want to turn this into a television series. He started doing it. There's a pilot you can watch on YouTube. And then it got canceled. So he had to like condense everything down into this pastiche nonlinear film of Mulholland Drive, which is exactly how uh, Pulp Fiction is told. Well, it's not, I mean, it's basically, it, it's maybe it's not exactly, but it's similar. Okay. Natural Born Killers is 
similar in the sense that Natural Born Killers actually, although it does manage to have a narrative, it's actually kind of a collection of several vignettes in a way because of the film in the beginning. And then um, later on when they're like uh, in the prison and it gets meta again with the journalist um, and he's filming everything. It's almost like it's like two or three different movies kind of. Um, And you can see this when you have like standalone scenes, like the scene where he's uh, again on television. He's in the movies or excuse me, He's in the movie, in prison, on television, like, telling a story, and he, like, tells this joke, and then they stage the prison break. Like, these are all sort of, like, standalone scenes, you know what I mean? Uh, But the whole movie isn't necessarily like that. The scene where they're in the desert is kind of a standalone scene. But then you get a movie like Kill Bill, and it's, like, literally a bunch of different movies put next to each other that tell the story. You know what I'm saying? It's like literally uh, a Western, a samurai movie, a kung fu movie, a gangster movie, uh, whatever, you know, everything. And if you look at uh, a movie that all of these guys really take inspiration from is Un Chen Andalou by Brunel, which uh, Dolly worked on. This movie, everyone who hasn't seen this movie needs to go see this movie. This movie is like the progenitor of all films. This movie is a loosely connected series of scenes that's each its own like vignette that like kind of almost tells a story. But if you watch that movie after watching all Quentin Tarantino and Oliver Stone and Lynch's movies, you can see that what these guys are doing with the medium comes from this guy, which, uh, you know, he's a visionary and the images in those movies inspire so much of what comes after it. Um, but it's structured in a similar way in that, like there's one scene that's like a love story. And then there's like a horror, a horror scene. And then there's like a gangster scene where gangsters show up and it like kind of only loosely has anything to do with each other. So like, so anyway, that's what I'm saying. The narrative is jumping mediums from film to digital and people like Tarantino and Lynch are at that like transition point and so is American Beauty um, and kind of Oliver Stone too. What are you going to say, Spendo? Dude, be spitting, man. I just, uh, I didn't want to cut in because I just wanted to see how long you could go for. That was... uh... Yeah, you went you went a bunch of different places, but I I followed. I want to maybe center this for people who aren't as familiar around like what you mean by the medium kind of overextending itself. Um, in in like film history, the year where postmodern the postmodern era begins is pinned at uh, 1976, and the reason is that's the year two films came out. Uh, Star Wars, which began the kind of blockbuster era, which was, you know, kind of collapsing this modernist, uh, snooty kind of art film era out towards a wide audience and kind of bringing it into the theater as a spectacle, right? Like, let's see, let's see what we can throw at this medium and see how, you know, uh, how much movie magic we can kind of throw at these mass audiences and, and kind of 
uh, market to the lowest common denominator, which was, um, you know, just like your average American family, basically at the time, uh, Western family. And then also what came out that year is uh, one best picture, Annie Hall, where Woody Allen, he breaks the, uh, the fourth wall and, you know, looks down the barrel of the lens and talks to the audience. Um, you've seen it most famously probably in Ferris Bueller, <clears throat> other things. People like to think that like, oh, he's a cheeky guy. Uh, he, he, he's brilliant with his snark. He thought to like do this uh, before anyone did. And it's like, no, this was, this was kind of a bastardization of the genre. The, this was done in commercials, of course, all the time. You know, this was done looking at the, you know, newscasting. It just seemed... Uh, people had more of a respect for the feature film before this point. And like Astral's thing, it was kind of stretched. So then you have these kind of delinquent or like, you know, kind of hip directors who are hip to like where the audience should go or, or wants them to go. Just, just throwing things like this at the, uh, at at the audience and just seeing how they react and <clears throat> to tie this kind of back to like what you were saying, I thought it was actually, I thought it was hilarious what you were saying about the, uh, the director chick of American psycho, because like, it's so true. She, she whiffed and like, it's, it's this kind of genre movie, like starship troopers, right. Where it just becomes like a darling film of like the, the people you'd least, you know, want to like, respected as like an epic film and i think the reason is like the she doesn't realize that like and and by the way tarantino does realize this is you making fun of the like handsome finance bro or jock with your nerdy little friends in the corner or whatever um is one thing and then doing that on the big screen to an audience of millions of people, the, the message is an entirely different thing, right? Like, and, and Tarantino understands with, with these characters, like he knows these characters are going to look fucking cool. Like, like you're, you're putting them on a, on a hundred foot screen in beautiful lights, makeup, you know, it's, it's an entirely different space of, of consciousness and, you know, honestly like magic going on so i think that's where the maybe the major disconnect is is that they don't really understand that it's it's a completely different message once it gets to that stage dude of, you're, uh, you're 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 making such an excellent point uh just think about michael madsen's character in um reservoir dogs and juxtapose him to like christian bale like he's a bad dude and Quentin Tarantino doesn't isn't hung up about it. He knows he's cool, and he like makes him cool on purpose. And he knows everyone's going to think he's cool, and everybody does think he's cool. Uh, go on. Th these are excellent points, man. Me, me, and me. No, me that and was kind of doing a podcast, and you can already see that it's going to be fucking high quality when it comes out. But go on. Yeah, I honestly just was about to stop there. I mean, I wanted to just back and forth, kind of get the get it going. But I'm glad you liked that point. Like, I'll just say about Madsen's character, like he has one of the best lines in Kill Bill, which is, you know, uh, that bitch like deserves revenge and we deserve to die, but so does she, right? And it's just kind of like that really sums up what the whole that, movie that's Kill about. Bill and too. Like right? Tarantino said that's the second one. Yeah, it's 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 pretty close to the beginning. Yeah, he just says like 
you know, she deserves her revenge. We deserve to die, but so does she too, right? And it's kind of like, like you said, like Tarantino can can take that right there and do this movie or a series of movies, series of content for hundreds of hours. He has enough to go with there just because he he kind of just understands um, how to have fun and pull from other movies, other things, other genres to like maximize that idea of people want someone deserving revenge and someone's got to die first. Right. Yeah. Well, Kill Bill two might even be my favorite Tarantino movie. I definitely like it better than the second, but better than the first one. Uh, it's a really good movie. I, I need to rewatch it though, uh, to see if it holds up on a repeat view. But what I was saying before I, I was having a brain fart, um, um, directors, good Directors who are actually artists, they don't want to just redo what everyone before them has already done. They don't want to just like make carbon copies of what their predecessors had done. They want to make something new. They want to say something new. They want to show something old in a new light. They want to be fresh and they want to have their own trademark. And I said Tarantino has the trademark of like being like a collage maker of old movies, you know, like taking different movies and like putting them together into the, like this new thing. His other trademark is like making like ultra hip characters, which I think he definitely jumped a shark at one point and he like started to suck at that. And his second half of his career is a whole different fucking beast than the first half. But the characters in True Romance, Natural Born Killers, like he explicitly wanted to make a psychopathic murderer. Uh, be someone that the audience liked in Mickey, Mickey's character in Kill, uh, not Kill Bill, Natural Born Killers. That's what he was trying to do. And he says that. And the reason why he was pissed, I already explained why he was pissed. Anyway, his characters are hip and cool in the 90s and mostly in Kill Bill, but you can already see in Kill Bill where he's becoming super self-aware, like, oh, I'm the guy who has the hip character, so I'm going to make all these people like non-stop hip in the same way that all my other characters were all the way through the movie but he does end up pulling it off in those movies but pretty much never again um but the guy i brain farted on was uh terrence malick in the movie badlands so the movie badlands is about the charles starkweather murders the movie bonnie and clyde by uh arthur penn these movies are like the stories that Clint Quentin Tarantino told like repeatedly, especially in True Romance and Natural Born Killers. Those are basically like the same fucking movie. Um, they, they basically, they start off from the same like foundation. They have the same like blueprint. Um, and then uh, I just want to throw this in here as well. Sam Peckinpah's The Wild Bunch, which is a great movie that everyone needs to watch. Um, Similar, similar, like, outlaws on the run that are really likable and cool, and they're, like, really badass and irredeemable fucking... They just party and wantonly murder and are only out for money. Um, Tarantino clearly drawing from this movie because there's a Mexican standoff in Mexico at the end of this movie, and he puts the Mexican standoff in, like, so many of his movies. So in order for him not to just be copying 
Arthur Penn and Sam Peckinpah and Terrence Malick, he had to do the new things that I was talking about. That's what I was talking about before when I said he had to like find a way and they, they had to be clever and use tricks and use gimmicks. And this is what that I mentioned an article by uh, John Barth. I can't think of the name of it right now, but the whole point of the article is that he's like, all the stories have already been told. So we are in a, we are in a rough place in literature right now because we can either like be good enough writers that we do things that were already done before that have inherent redeeming qualities, but that's like a big risk. You might not be good enough and you might just like fade into obscurity. Um, and you probably aren't going to do something that hasn't been done before. You're probably just going to just do like work in the well-worn like grooves of literature and the novel that other people created. You're just going to be following their paths or you can like do these tricks. And he talks about um, John Cage, who is like the, the classical musical equivalent of like the postmodern writer. You can be like John Cage and you can like come up with like a novelty that like, isn't necessarily like good. It doesn't necessarily like make a like, tight concise product that follows all the rules but at least you're like adding something new and you have this trick that like does something different but this is how like things become meta and this is how like abstract expressionism comes about because john cage and and barth talks about this in the essay john cage took like washers and nuts and bolts and other things and like connected them to the strings of his piano and then he would play his piano and they would make all these clunky noises and it like Kind of sounded almost a little bit cool, but, like, wasn't that great. It, like, wasn't as good as, like, real classical piano playing. So the only reason why you have, like, a positive experience engaging with that art is because you have the intellectual knowledge that he did this, like, neat, like, little gimmicky trick with it. And you don't go there and, like, enjoy the music. Instead, you, like... uh giggle or marvel or smirk at the like trick that he pulled and he was saying that like artists and writers going into the future like this is what their two choices are they're either like walking in the well-worn paths and the grooves of the past or coming up with these new gimmicks that kind of become the product themselves and there's no like artistic merit to it uh, so if you get the book, Welcome to the Fun House, because he had already written The Sotweed Factor and Giles Goat Boy before this. And then he wrote Welcome to the Fun House after this. And if you see that, like, there's all these gimmicks in it that are, like, kind of pointless. It's, like, not even really a book. You know what I mean? <clears throat> so people like David Lynch, uh, Paul, uh, Quentin Tarantino, Oliver Stone this is what they have to work with. Like the conditions that Barth was laying out. Like they can either just tell the same fucking Sam Peckinpah, or excuse me, Terrence Malick, Badlands story over again with the natural born killers, or they can uh, put the trickery into it. Um, Tarantino is good enough and smart enough that he knew that he could tell a story and uh, pull it off. Whereas Oliver Stone didn't. And there's like a, a form of confidence and self-confidence that comes 
with knowing that like your content is good enough on its own. And if you feel like you have to do this like meta bullshit, then that shows that you're not like confident in yourself. And you know, in Mary, Her I was, I've been like so strongly tearing down Mary Harrington because I don't like feminism. But another thing in her, to her credit is that, uh, she, uh, th that was only her second movie. So, you know, I could, I could check out some of her later movies. Maybe she doesn't make these same mistakes, but, uh, you know, that's where I'm at. I'm, I'm, I'm like totally at a different subject. I'm like not talking about any of the stuff I started talking about now. Yeah. I mean, if you get a chance at a second feature and you don't absolutely smash it, like you shouldn't get a third, you know, but the box office numbers were good enough. I think. Did it? Do you know if it? Flopped? It was like mixed. I don't think it flopped, but I don't yeah, think it. But the I know the DVD sales were off the charts. Well, see, and that's <laughs> the thing like, I'm talking about with like the transition of one media to the next. It got to the point where people like the only thing they thought about or cared about was audience reaction and how well it performed at the box office. But once like DVDs started coming out and then digital downloads and Netflix. They didn't, it didn't matter so much. So they could start making like shittier movies or they could start doing like different things. They didn't have to take the risks or rely on the gimmicks or like the stakes weren't as high because they could recoup it at the box office. Like all they had to do was tell a concise Aristotelian story with a beginning, middle and an end with a conflict and conflict res resolution, which is just a formula. That's the thing I was saying about people not wanting to like tread the well-worn grooves is they don't want to make formulaic stories. But now with a digital medium, like you can make a formulaic story. And as long as you know, you're going to like have something in it that like hooks audiences. Um, you, that you just, you just worry about uh, recouping your money in DVD sales or in digital downloads. And it like degrades the quality of the art being produced. That's why like you have different eras. You know what I mean? That's why you have an era of, uh, the golden age. We have the era of the blockbuster, you know? And then in the Marvel movies, the reason why Scorsese and Tarantino and all them fucking hate the Marvel movies is because they're exactly what I said before. They're like these cookie cutter characters where you just, you have a situation and you just interchange like different characters in different situations and you just the move them around. Level.
because they're exactly what I said before. They're like these cookie cutter characters where you just you have a situation and you just interchange like different characters in different situations and you just move them around. And Bro. Go ahead, yeah. You would you would lose your tits if you saw the early monster movies coming out of Universal or whatever studio. Like this is not a new fucking thing. Yeah, Spendo can speak on that. Yeah, this has been happening over and over again throughout the history of cinema for sure. And if you go back and watch movies from the 20s, well, like I said about Brunel, like it's all already there in, in this movie that came out in like 1929. But yeah, no, say more about the monster movies. I'm interested in that. I mean, just just take all your all your criticisms about Marvel movies and apply them to the early Universal franchises and it's, it's the same. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, you mean like Godzilla or like what? Which or like King Kong and all them? No, not the not the kaiju or that's not the fucking right word. Um, no, not the not the Japanese horror films. I mean, like the Frankenstein's, the mummies, and the um, Bride of Frankenstein. All those. Yeah, well, in a way, like I get what you're saying. In a way, every every studio kind of had their own had their own like ecosystem to churn out like the same genre of film. And sometimes the film was centered around a star or a group of stars. So like there was this Marvel effect, but like with six different studios across Hollywood, right? And they were just churning out like you know fifty to a hundred features a year of just like mostly garbage. Um, just because they could and they could shoot it cheap and pay the actors real cheap and keep it all in house uh, under their lights um, in the same location. So you could get like in one month, like something like 10 features shot under like one director. If you were, if they were just like easy. Yeah, no, that's a good point. Overlook. Uh, I will call on you in one second. I just want to respond real quick. I actually had delicious tacos on my podcast and it didn't really like, he didn't really indulge me. It's it's not my favorite episode. He, he's a nice enough guy and everything. But he was in Hollywood. And I think, I don't know, I think he's just jaded or something. But I wanted to have him on to talk about his experience in Hollywood. And he was just basically like, fuck all them. Fuck those people. Fuck, fuck it. But one of his criticisms of me was I was talking about, I mean, it's basically exactly what the wiki accelerationist said here is I was talking about like the golden era and this stuff. And he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not really the golden era because you remember like the three really good movies from that year, but you don't pay attention to the 150 shitty movies that nobody liked that were flops that nobody talks about anymore. And um, his point was kind of similar to wiki's, which is that like this stuff has always been going on. And yes, that is true. And that is part of why film has always been considered like lowbrow or middlebrow at best, but really lowbrow, like media consumption for the masses because of this like high output of like cookie cutter stuff. But well, I I would say I work in, in production, like I'm in the union. I do this for a living. That's my career. But like, um, yeah, the majority of shit I work on is cookie cutter. In fact, I would say probably everything I worked on would fit your definition of cookie cutter. And that's just the majority of output. <laughs> Have you heard of this guy, Delicious Tacos? you follow him or you know who he is? No, I'm not. Yeah, he doesn't talk about it that much. But um, 
you're you he was also in the industry and you know i'm not giving anything away he says this on podcasts and stuff uh and he has got like the same critique you do more or less uh but overlooked uh what, what is your name overlook hotel i'm guessing overlook pictures go ahead thanks interesting space so congratulations on that it's it's not always easy to assemble a, a good space just on the question of um the Universal Monsters and Hamahara and that kind of stuff. Um, it's good to think of them perhaps as functional films. That these were films that you could take a girl to, and um, it was a little risque. It was uh, emotionally heightening. So if you wanted to get lucky, you don't take it to a romance film. Take it to a horror film because that will activate <laughs> that will activate some of the um, the subconscious elements that are important for uh, for first, second, third dates, whatever it is. Um, but on the, on the question of quality overall, it, it's difficult to judge. Um, you know, we are of a particular time. We see our films in a particular way. And it's difficult to, to cross time. Just think of the difficulty that people have in watching silent films. It's very, very tough for modern audiences to do that. But um, it is possible to ease into it. Um, you need to dedicate some time. And whether that's rewarding or not for you is something to be, you know, something to think about. So your, your suggestion earlier about... Um, I think it was, uh, the idea of um, basically thinking about how whatever new medium we have allows new stories to be told in new voices. This is the way to go, I think. Um, keep keep producing, keep making stuff. And, okay, people have kissed before. That doesn't mean that your first kiss is less exciting. You know? It has nothing to do with it. So what if someone's made a story about you know, a bank robbery or a Bonnie and Clyde type um, couple going across the country? Um, that isn't your story, you know. Do your story. Let's, let's find out what, what story you have in you, you know, what experience you've, you ha- you've had, your sensibilities, and how they relate to uh, to everyone else's. And you might find that there's connections, you know, there's networks of uh, comparative sensibilities that add up to something. Anyway, just a, a simple, a simple exhortation. Yeah, no, that's good. Thank you for the contribution, and uh, hopefully you stick around. I don't have that much more time left, and I ranted way more than I intended to. Basically, Spendo showed up, and I've been doing a fucking uh, Herculean amount of work behind the scenes to get ready for this podcast episode with him. And I just saw him and I started like spurging about all of it. So the stuff about the medium ballooning off the narrative, jumping from one medium to all that stuff that isn't really related to American psycho really. Uh, But I was talking about postmodernism and stuff. So, um, I don't know. I was going to basically rehash Overlook's point, but I, I agree with Overlook. Go ahead, uh, Spendo. Yeah, just back to the point you were saying that Taco's made um, in Wiki here. It's like, yeah, they're right. This has been um, done before. We are looking back with kind of rose-colored glasses, but I will say there's a key distinction which is that like these movies need to appease kind of a mass audience to like <clears throat> these Marvel movies, let's call it to, to really work. Um, so like the box office is really held up on stilts right now in terms of like the budgets are so bloated. You have to, you know, fewer movies are getting made to go to the, to the big screen and they're taking, you know, more and more of the pie. Whereas like you had a healthy competition back in the day, whereas with like the five or six different major studios. Uh, now it's really only kind of like what Disney Warner brothers, um, maybe one other throwing shit up there and like hoping, hoping it's, you know, China buys it basically. 
um, and, and that audience digs it. And there's a, there's a real risk here about them fumbling the bag really hard and just completely tanking their entire um, studio, which was a risk back in the day. But there was at least, I felt like there was at least like five or six other studios waiting to claim that real estate had one, you know, like Howard Hughes famously just tanked RKO pictures um, with all of his gambles. <clears throat> so these, I, th I think there is a, just like a, a serious like economic distinction in like who the audience is and what they yearn for. Back in the day, you could have, you could have fumbled a, a film and, and gotten away with 10, 15 strikes in a row that were just whiffs. Um, these days you can, but they're going straight to Netflix. You, you kind know. of can't. I mean, it's such a different um, media environment because it's shifted so much to television production from film, like uh, monumentally so. Um, in my city, in my local, like it, it's ninety-five percent of the people employed are going to be working on TV shows, and then like five percent maybe movies. Are you? Are you in? If you don't mind saying, are you in Atlanta? Um, I'm. My local is in Chicago. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. I wouldn't. I wouldn't even consider it the same right same medium. So, it's an important conversation to have. I just think it gets into the weeds really quickly. Well, I think you can't like we can't really divorce, especially in conversation where you're like, oh, okay, it's like shallow materialism now with Marvel movies or whatever, where it's like, uh, you know, it's not art. It's not, or you know, it's like artists aren't able to be subversive and uh, creative and. You know, this is executives, and um, and by the way, executives are kind of useful, but <laughs> but like, um, I, I, yeah, I don't know. I don't think you can get away from it. At least as, as someone who works in the industry, because it's all the the jobs just are in TV. And when you talk about like fourteen failures in a row, like that's one season of TV. Although of course you can have a different director for every single episode. Yeah, and remember, like, although I'm not a fan of Marvel movies, and I endorse the statements the the thing you were responding to that i said i was talking about what scorsese and tarantino say about marvel movies um i was saying that television was that way where you have these specific characters and you just plug them in every episode to like different situations that are like not that you know it's basically the same situation over and over again and tarantino and Scorsese basically said this about Marvel movies that like, like Tarantino recently said that there's no movie stars anymore. There's like the characters of Iron Man and Captain America and like any actor can play them. So like, doesn't matter. And you saw this, you know, with Batman, for example, um, from, it went from, who was it? Michael Keaton to Val Kilmer and George Clooney and whatever Christian Bale. Um, so yeah, but you know, uh, go ahead, Overlook. Fisher, if you want the mic, please join in. I, you missed a great space. I was hoping you would show up. Just on the distinction between TV and cinema, this is something Athenian would um, be able to talk on, is that um, with TV, you miss out on that uh, platonic cave aspect, that, that idea of sharing consensually in real time and as a crowd, and the crowd is a creature, um, an emotional creature, uh, you can experience this careful, carefully designed sequence of um, emotional situations which are, are very, very um, addictive and uh, can also be 
uh, inspirational, educational. And an example of that would be film noir. So that these were, um, you know, very low budget films, you know, made in, in black and white, even though color was um, you know, becoming available. And which uh, ticked requirements with regard to their, their functional kind of requirements in terms of profitability and um, fielding new actors as they, uh, or old actors, you know, depending upon you know, what era we choose. But the point is, is that uh, the filmmakers were able to be quite sophisticated and also subversive if they wanted to be against whatever narrative might have been prevailing. And um, it's, it's actually kind of interesting how sophisticated um, these little films can be. Um, I mean, people look at, um, they turn to, to things like Wells and, uh, and Hitchcock, but there's lots and lots of other directors who aren't as, as accomplished, but are doing really interesting things. And it's not always you know, detective stories. They're often, they're usually actually about ethics. They're usually about the formulation um, in, in a nihilistic kind of um, you know, world where there is no kind of universal value system. How does usually a man, not always, come up with a, an ethical system which is uh, sufficient for them? And maybe they fail, you know, but there's some sort of uh, struggle there. Yeah. Hey, Astral, I got to uh, jump, but good, good talking to you. All right, man. Um, and if you want to ever just like run a space to bounce ideas back and forth about this, it seems like people are interested. Yeah, so. it was good. We should, I guess, I guess maybe there's uh, 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 spaces about movies have legs. Um. So I, I guess that's uh, that's that's a good sign. Uh, I might be out of steam though. I I'm willing to keep it open, but I can't carry the space by myself anymore. Um, so I'm um, yeah. Anything I, you have I to saw say? American Psycho for the first time really recently. I saw American Psycho for the first time two days ago. Oh, nice. nice. What do people? I, I'm curious about how people receive it in pop culture because the person. I, so I watched it with a girl, and her her entire. Um, uh, explanation to it of it, the movie to me was like men love this, <laughs> and I was like I don't really know this movie, and she's like all right fine like I'll just show it to you so that you understand the memes and like why men are into this. Um, do you think my friend is full of shit or is there something to it? Because I saw it as a really weird kind of like art film, but like I I didn't really see anything to like like charismatic really about the character or anything like this. I just kind of thought it was like disassociated and weird, but I'm wondering how other people feel about it. Like what their emotions well, are. That, that girl out. sounds cool. <laughs> I definitely think that that's awesome that she did that. Uh, uh, yeah. I was going to say any, any woman who comes over to hang out and it's like, Oh, Hey, by the way, uh, men love this here. I'm going to, I'm going to do this for you to show this to you. That that's a, that's something to, uh, Yeah. Yeah, that's something not to take lightly. Um, yeah, I don't know, man. I was hoping a woman would come up and give a, a straight woman's perspective on this because uh, I feel like, I mean, I don't, were you here? I, I don't know how much of you heard what I said, but like I would I would think that a lesbian would have a more intellectual take of this movie than a, a straight woman who would like potentially react to the way Christian Bale looks and carries himself in it. Uh, that might in, inform their, uh, Oh, who is this person here? Do you want the mic, Mr. Or Mi- I don't, I, I don't think their, their thoughts were that he, that Christian Bale is particularly charismatic so much as just like, this is like, uh, you know, friends in our, in our circle, like really like this movie and you should understand why. <laughs> 
Right, no, I, I get what you're saying, that she she didn't show you it because she was, like, in love with the Christian Bale character. I get, I get what you're saying. But I would like to hear her take on, like, what she thought of it. Or any other woman's, for that matter. I don't know uh, if I'm right about... Wait, 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 wait. What's your take on American Psycho? It's annoying that everybody, every man wants to be like that. <laughs> Yeah, but, but, but do you like, can, I don't know if you, she can hear me, but do you like, uh, I mean, what do you think of, of Christian Bell's character? Like, I know you don't like him in the sense that he's a murderer, obviously, but like, did you enjoy? No, he seems kind of feminine and unappealing. I, like, I don't understand the attraction. At like, all. the yeah, he's like definitely Metro. He's definitely Metro. So you mean like the skincare routine and everything? Well, yeah, and the arrogance and all of it, like the vanity and the concern for appearances. Yeah, but he looks good, though. You don't think he looks good? I don't think so. I mean, so some of it, obviously, is the age of the movie and whatever, but... No. Yeah. Christian Bale's not your type? No, she not at all. Cute. Okay. I have a thing for guys with, like, bigger noses. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. She. Who does she like? Like, who... Because I know... I've known women... Definitely, who she likes Tyrion Lannister and um, and the guy, the scheming guy, uh, Lightfoot, oh, Light, Peter no, Baelish, Lightfoot, whoever yeah, the yeah, scheming guy figure, is on little Game of Thrones, little finger, little finger, she likes oh, little finger. Okay, I've met women like that, they're yeah. So she does like some, like you know, scheming kind of people, but right? But not, it's it's different, it's one. different because. Some women are into like the personality or or the quirkiness or something other than like they don't like the superficiality, which which is fine. But um she's probably somebody I would suspect she probably like went for what the what the director was trying to do. But I don't know, I don't wanna I don't know her, so I'm not gonna try to whatever. But to like Littlefinger and Tyrion and not like Jamie Lannister and Cal Drogo, that kinda tells you like where that person's coming from. There's like, there's like two types of women. Uh, all right. So, I think, I think this space might might be uh, at its natural conclusion. Does anyone in the audience want to talk? Or Wiki, I'm open to letting you talk more. I've appreciated your contribution so far. Does anybody else have anything want to say? Z was making funny faces at me. And I've seen him or her have spaces open before, so I know you talk sometimes. So if you want to say anything, or anyone else, Eden, you have a few more minutes before I close the space. Eden, I've heard you talk before, so I feel like you're slighting me. But maybe you're not listening. I changed my avatar to this girl because I had an idea of a joke I wanted to play. And I played the joke, and then because I'm a fucking Twitter Blue subscriber, it wouldn't let me, like, go back to my normal image. So now I have to stay as the Greek towel boy with this fucking Italian girl's avatar. And the joke that I played was funny, but it, like, didn't really justify a complete fucking image change to a Greek towel boy. So I think for as long as I have this avatar, until Twitter lets me go back, I'm going to have to just stay in character after this space. Uh, 
So maybe I'll, maybe I'll, I don't know. I was going to, I was thinking about starting a rivalry with like Dasha and uh, Ayala, but I don't know if that will get me a lot of followers or not. Go ahead, uh, Salah. Having a piece out, it's been fun. Well, Wiki, I never met you before, but thanks for coming in, man. I appreciate you. You can come back because I like people who have movie insider knowledge, and uh, you and Spendo had a little bit of a rapport. All right, got. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, so if you see a space open, uh, you're welcome to come. Uh, I'm getting. This is gonna end. Come on. <laughs> this has never happened before. Usually, like five thousand people want the mic. I think the avatar is a part of the problem. Because I have like a whole normal crew that isn't here. Yeah, I thought uh, I thought someone had been added to the group chat. I was like, the, the hell is this? I was like, what's going on here? But I, I think that uh, that Salah person might be having difficulties connecting. Uh, I tried to add them a number of times and it, it kept saying problems. And then whenever given the mic to them, they might be trying to use uh, the computer uh, instead of the, yeah. the phone or something. So. I don't yeah. know why Fisher dropped out, but um, you know, this space space is just about over. But... Hey, I have a quick question. If, if there's just one more minute left on this. Yeah, go for it, man. Actually, it's, a, it, it's actually just a comment. Uh, well, the question was it was already answered. I was wondering how much longer uh, the avatar was going to stay on, on on the host here. Um, but then the comment is, so I'm late Gen X. I'm sorry. I'm Yeah, I'm late Gen X. I'm 47 years old. I have five teenagers, uh, two boys, three girls, all in high school at the same time. I noticed about a year ago that my teenagers and their circle of friends we're talking all hockey players athletes cheerleaders all that they all rediscovered american cycle right around right around mid 2022 and it was a kind of a you know like a discovery moment they're coming to me hey dad you know have you heard of this movie you know you know and they don't know christian bale for shit it's he's batman you know what i mean and so they're like hey if you, you know Almost like, almost like they've discovered like fire. Like this movie is like kind of, and I don't know if it's the whole '80s aesthetic going on in the movie. And the '80s are hot right now with Generation Alpha, and you know the, that whole thing. Everyone knows that. But whatever it is, I just, I it jumped. This movie, I kind of lost track of American Psycho for about ten years. I'm a big fan of the movie, but I lost track of it because you know life. But you know, I'm watching teenagers, which I'm not excited about. It's not like a Oh great! You discovered this movie because there's obviously a lot of uh, uh, imagery in this movie that's not suitable for, you know, minors. But you know, these kids are all discovering it probably through the memes or whatever. I just wanted to throw that out there. It's not really a question, just kind of a comment. No, I think that's great and interesting. Um, I have a teenage daughter as well, and she is discovering like stuff from the '90s is becoming cool again. And all these kids are really into TikTok. And a lot of this stuff is like TikTok memes that they see. And uh, sorry, I didn't realize I fucking turned my music back on. I don't know if you can hear that. It distracted me, though. Uh, and it's just weird to me that the way this stuff comes back around because 
people were tweeting about Fight Club and it was getting like a ton of play. So I rewatched Fight Club, reread the book and did a lot of thinking about it and writing about it and did a podcast episode about it. And I was like, well, shit, it's 2022 and I need to like, you know, American Psycho came out around the same time as this movie. So I should revisit that and like see how that holds up. And it holds up like really, really well. Um, And I almost wonder if like the Fight Club discussion I saw was like spillover maybe from other other platforms of this like rebirth of like that era of movies. I don't know if it's connected, but there's definitely this like nostalgia thing going on where like the eighties and nineties are cool and hip. Uh, I guess these things always come back around and uh, he say you braid runner. Your, your avatar is the character who makes the eyes, right? He's the Chinese guy who makes the eyes for the replicants. No, he's the, uh, can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. No, uh, he's the, uh, my avatar is uh, the guy who actually says the line, he say you braid runner, when he says it to Harrison Ford in the first act of the movie, when Harrison Ford's ordering noodles. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay, okay, okay. I forgot about so, that guy. Yeah, so uh, interesting, though, uh, to your point about Fight Club, um, my sons have discovered that as well. It's interesting. And by the way, when I talk to them about it, they come to me and they're like, "Hey, Dad, have you, you know, you know, have you heard of this movie?" It's like, "Yeah, I've heard of this movie. Right. What are you talking about? Right. You know, like give me a give me a freaking break." And but it's, I don't know if they're understanding it in the way that our generation understood it when we watched it. We were kind of like, you know, the the existential sort of stuff going on in it that kind of blew everyone's mind, you know. And now it and then it kind of became like an alt right fave as well. I don't know if they got any of that, but. They just thought it was hilarious. They thought the imaging was great. They thought the whole story it blew their minds. I don't know how deep they got into it, but Fight Club was one that they grabbed onto as well. Particularly my sons. My daughters haven't really how watched it at all. I got uh, I got three sixteen year olds. What? Yeah, triplets. Oh my god! Really? Three sixteen year olds. Then I got a fourteen year old. And then I've got a thirteen-year-old uh, who's a freshman. She's a she's an old thirteen. That uh, this is her freshman year. Yeah, tell me about it. I know what you mean. So, I know what you mean by that. Aaron, uh, playing... oh, oh, sorry. oh I'm sorry, Aaron, are you still there, buddy? Uh, yeah, I'm still here. I, I haven't had really anything to add, so I've been. Well, you were saying about like the Zoomer memes, like memeing American Psycho. Like, do do young people still think uh, Fight Club is cool? Or, like, what do they think about it? Do you know? Uh, I wouldn't know about Fight Club in particular, but um, I'm on I'm uh, Instagram, like, just online a lot, and, like, I see, like, a lot of, like, uh, Zoomers, like, trying to, like, recreate, like, uh, Patrick Bateman's, like, facial expressions, like... Like this is how to act Sigma and you know, etc. So Patrick Bateman is even more than Tyler Durden. Uh yes, I That's crazy. So. I mean I think I agree actually now that I think about it. I think I see Patrick Bateman around more. This is an interesting phenomenon because it's just not what the director intended at all. But if you think about it too though, like that type of guy that Patrick Bateman represents has gone definitely underground or faded to the background as a cultural force. Uh, 
you know, those people are still around. And like I said, like after 2008, like a lot of them are demonized, but they're not like the object of like, uh, you know, cultural like exploration. And when they are, it's like Jordan Belfort to be like, um, I don't know. I mean, Jordan Belfort, in a way, Jordan Belfort comes across as worse than Patrick Bateman, actually. Um, he's, like, less sympathetic in a weird way to Patrick Bateman. I don't know. He plays the character which with much more bravado um, than Bateman plays. But but anyway, my, my point is, though, is that, like, society used to, like, worship the alpha male. Like, the, the Wall Street guy that Patrick Bateman is was happening at the same time that, like, you know, Die Hard and Arnold Schwarzenegger and Stallone movies were, like, the bo- big things in the box office. Uh, so, like, this male bravado was, like, real... Uh, had a lot of cultural capital, and now it doesn't. So for young guys to, like, latch on to that, uh, it's... I don't want to say it's an underground thing. It's not exactly underground, but it's definitely, like, beneath surface like it's only being spread through memes like Patrick Bateman isn't being like uh, lionized in the cinema right because they're all fucking woke I mean they already were trying to to critique him in the first place but now it's even worse like he, he, he this is like uh, this is like that movie uh, what is that movie by the Key and Peele guy and he he made that movie where black people were like hypnotized by white people and white people like, what is that? What is the name of that? Get out. Yeah. This is like, this is like in that same vein. I feel like, you know what I mean? It's not exactly saying the same thing, but it's like trying to demonize this portion of the population that is really like, I don't want to say totally beyond reproach, but can like just juxtapose what Get Out and uh, uh, American Psycho does for like the normal, well-adapted white, you know, heterosexual male, or the the, the normal well-adapted heterosexual family, and um, I don't know. I'm fucking falling asleep. I can't remember what I was gonna say. I can't remember what I was going to say. Yeah, I want to point out that uh, Kay and Peele uh, got rich off of imitating uh, black substitutes that couldn't even speak proper English uh, to white kids. Uh, so that's just worth keeping on the, the board there uh, because then they uh, both went off to make these movies, uh, you know, making whites seem so bad, uh, even though they themselves contributed wonderfully. Uh, to showing uh, the inarticulate uh, inability to speak uh, just basic English uh, to high school kids. So, uh, Yeah, I can't do this anymore. I have to close this space because I had a point. I was going to compare Get Out and American Psycho to something, but I forgot what, and that means I've run out of steam. But I appreciate a lot of people stayed for a really long time. So I really appreciate that. And I'm definitely going to do this like as much as possible because that was a ton of fun. 
And it proved to me also that the fucking hours of my life that I dedicate to waking up at four o'clock in the morning to read like super academic intellectual books actually has a payoff value. <laughs> um, so stay tuned for me and Spendo's podcast episode on Quentin Tarantino because that's where I'm going to talk about what I was saying about the transition from film to television because that's what is going on with Tarantino, especially with the Kill Bill movies. And then I'm going to have a follow-up episode where we talk about Tarantino's revisionist movies, um, The Inglorious Bastards, Django, and um, uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which are two of his three worst movies. Django's garbage. That movie, um, his worst movie is Grindhouse. That's a, a god-awful movie. And then Django is bad, but there's at least a couple of redeeming things about it. And then Inglorious Bastards is also really bad, but there's even more redeeming things about that movie. So we're going to have a follow-up episode. The first episode is going to be about Pulp Fiction and the two Kill Bill movies. And we'll talk about a couple other stuff. It's mainly about those three. Then the second episode is going to be about Django, Inglorious, and Hollywood. And then there's an episode about David Lynch that I might bring Spendo in for. I don't have to talk to him. But Spendo, by the way, is like an expert about this. I don't know if you guys know who he is, but he's uh, the real deal. And you'll see. I'm going to talk about David Lynch and mostly Mulholland Drive. Um, and then what else? Uh, I can't even remember. So... There's much more in store. All right. I'm like falling asleep while I'm talking, so I'm ending the space right now. Thank you for coming so much. I really had a good time and appreciated you all for hanging out. Athenian and Aaron, you're great co-hosts. I appreciate it. I was really hoping all those trans and lesbians and gays who were attacking me for the last 48 hours nonstop showed up because I would have just screamed at them and kicked them out without having to talk and it would have been great. All right, bye-bye.